me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Cause it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. It's often said that Jackie Robinson opened the door for black baseball players to enter the majors, but that was just the first door. Turns out a lot of doors stood between black players and equality. There's a new documentary on the History Channel tomorrow called After Jackie. It focuses on three more legends that followed, all with the St. Louis Cardinals in the 1960s. Bill White, Bob Gibson, and Kurt Flood. Here's director Andre Gaines. What we see in Jackie Robinson is a player first and then he becomes an activist in his retirement. With Bill, Bob, and Kurt, it's the sort of first wave in our nation's history of the player activist, something that we kind of take for granted today. These guys who are actually playing at the highest level possible, but still standing up and fighting for their rights, not only economically speaking in the case of Kurt Flood, but also against discrimination. Let's hear Bob Gibson talking about when he reported to spring training in St. Petersburg. That was 1961, along with his catcher, Tim McCarver, who's white. The Bainbridge Hotel is where the, the Cardinals headquarters were. I took my bag and went into the Bainbridge and I said, my name is Bob Gibson and I'm with the Cardinals and you're supposed to have a place for me. And uh, he says, yeah, we have a place for you. He said, you go out that door right over there and then right outside, there's a cab sitting there. You tell him you want him to take you to Mrs. Johnson. That's where all the guys are staying. I said, all the guys are staying there? He says, yeah, pretty much. The white players would stay with the white players, and the black players would go to a place called Colored Town. I really was disappointed because I knew that that stuff existed, but I'd never really run into it where it was as blatant as it was, they were right in your face. So, Andre, considering how successful Jackie Robinson was and this idea that uh, that things are better, possibly, after his breakthrough, what did this kind of thing signal to players like Bob Gibson and his black teammates about where they stood in baseball and in America? Well, things were not getting better. As a matter of fact, in many cases, things got quite worse. When you look at Jackie Robinson, he had the whole world's eyes on him, all the cameras, all the attention. But the second wave of guys, I mean, namely Bill White, Bob Gibson, and Kurt Flood, they were doing it without anybody really watching. So they were subject to a lot of overt discrimination and just flat-out racism, especially in the Jim Crow South. And uh, that didn't make it any better or any worse necessarily, but it did uh, you know, strike at the heart of morale for these teammates who were trying to just play at the highest level possible while still having to deal with just trying to find a place to 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 lay their head. Because when I think of some of the best teams in sports, they'll all say that some of the strongest bonds they create are not necessarily when they're playing or practicing, but when they're just hanging out, That's when right. they're just having dinner, when they're just doing what normal people do that are in a workplace. But they weren't able to do that. At least these Cardinal teams were because they were in separate hotels. Yeah, that's really one of the highlights of our film. When Bill White had spoken with August Bush, who was the heir to the Budweiser fortune and actually 
the owner of the Cardinals team about trying to figure out a way to to get integrated housing for the for the players because they all wanted to stay together, but they they weren't allowed to do that in the Deep South. He uh, ends up buying a hotel, uh, the Outrigger Inn, and the team is able to stay there together. And we say we have all of these these photographs, them just barbecuing together on uh, going out on boats together, hanging out. It's that camaraderie that really Tim McCarver, Bill White, these guys really credit to the success of the Cardinals team. So in 1964, the Cardinals, led by White, Gibson, and Flood, eventually got good enough to win the National League pennant and get to the World Series. Let's uh, listen to a Kurt Flood describing that feeling. Most of us felt an aura about us that made us very special. And I guess it had to do with, with uh, a lot with the fact that we were such a mixed up group of guys and, and that we were overcoming all of the prejudice and all the BS. During that very, very difficult time, there was something about us that, that, uh, that drew us together, even within the troubles that we were having as blacks and as whites. And here we were living together and winning together and, and sharing together and, and enjoying each other. And it, was, it was an amazing turn of events. So, Andre, this, this Cardinals club won the World Series over the Yankees in 64 and then over the Red Sox in 67. How would you say that success, the way Kurt Flood described it, helped further the civil rights movement? Really in two ways. One, in, in being able to showcase the pure athleticism of these guys uh, at really the highest level. On the other hand, I think the fact that what they were doing off the field like, you know, Kurt Flood going down with Jackie Robinson to a march in Greenwood, Mississippi. They were frankly just trying to survive. They didn't realize necessarily what the the final result of that would be. I mean, Kurt Flood is a perfect example of this, of somebody who opened the door for free agency, what we now call free agency. He was just trying to be properly paid and live in a city where his family was and just trying to do basic things to survive. But what they did was just open it up for so many generations of us to participate in, in the uh, positive results of that. And specifically for Bob Gibson, who was the Cardinals' ace number one starting pitcher. I, I think his success also showed, if, if you can believe it, that there was this thought that black players could not handle thinking positions. In baseball, that would be a starting pitcher or maybe a shortstop, the leadership role. Mm -hmm. it, it is amazing that it, even when Bob Gibson's success, that that didn't translate to leadership roles right away. It still has taken a long time and probably for a lot of people, not, uh, not fast enough. No, it's true. I mean, the sad reality kind of right now is that about 8% of the, the league is African-American, which was about the same when Jackie Robinson actually retired, there was a huge renaissance, especially of black players all through kind of the 70s, 80s, 90s, up through Ken Griffey Jr., who is someone we talked to in the film. But they do make mention Ken Griffey Jr., Mookie Betts, who's in the film, CeCe Sabathia, who's in the film, that they need to do more to get black kids and brown kids playing the game again. That's Andre Gaines, director of After Jackie. It premieres tomorrow on the History Channel. Andre, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome aboard Celebrity Slave Ship, departing the Gold Coast and making short stops in Bahia, Port-au-Prince, and Havana before our final destination of Savannah. Hi, I'm Miss Pat, and I'll be serving you here in Cabin A. 
Now we'll be flying at an altitude that's pretty high, so shackles must be worn at all times. <laughs> If you have any trouble bonding yourself, I'll be more than glad to assist. We also ask that you please refrain from call and response singing between cabins, as that sort of thing can lead to rebellion. And of course, no drums are allowed on board. <laughs> Thanks for flying, celebrity. And here's hoping we have a pleasant takeoff. Get on board, celebrity slingship. Get on board, celebrity slingship. Get on board, celebrity slingship. There's room for many more. Today, St. Simon's Island along the coast of Georgia is a vacation getaway. But in 1803, Africans arriving on a slave ship rebelled. Natalie Mendenhall of Georgia Public Broadcasting explains that rebellion has become a legend, the meaning of which is still being debated today. A warning, this story contains references to suicide. Dunbar Creek looks like any other tidal creek you might drive across on your way to the beach at St. Simon's Island. But this place is special. A new roadside historic marker only begins to explain why. It reads in part, in 1803, Igbo captives from West Africa revolted while on a slave ship. That's one history. Amy Mitchell Roberts knows another. You had to go to people once I heard it. Roberts is descended from enslaved people who worked this island, which means she's Gullah Geechee. She remembers the warning a childhood neighbor got from his mother about going down to Dunbar Creek. You know, she wouldn't let her son go fishing down there because it was the end of the world. The end of the world? Because once the 75 Igbo finished a three-month voyage from Africa to Georgia's coast... They decided that this was not the life that they wanted. This was not what they bargained for. So they took control of the ship and drove their captors into the water. But there were still men on shore waiting to force the Igbo onto plantations. When the ship, a boat, stopped, they just walked over into the water. What you believe happened next depends on what you or your ancestors needed from the story. Even this story now has grown into something larger than what happened on that day. That's Griffin Lotson, Amy's cousin and the vice chairman of the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Commission. He remembers being told by his father that when the Igbo went into the water, they didn't drown, they flew home. And the flying African stories come about because the only thing you had in your mind, like the Igbos, was being free. Freedom was not on the mind of the Georgia planters after the incident. In a letter written not long after the rebellion, slave trader William Mines hid his sympathy for a white overseer. Poor fellow lost his life, Mine wrote. As for how Mine and others of his class felt about the 12 Igbo in the group that ultimately drowned. These Africans are money to them. They are wealth to them. That's Amir Jamal Toure, Gullah Geechee fellow at Georgia Southern University. Torrey says it's wrong to interpret what happened at the Igbo landing site as a mass suicide. That's somebody else shaping the narrative. Instead, he says, see the drowning as an act of resistance. They're like saying that basically no man owns my soul. Only God owns my soul. Bobby Anekwu says that's a story that's traveled the globe. And it's called the first freedom march in the United States. Anekwu is an Atlanta attorney born in Nigeria. He's also a Ozo, or spiritual advisor in the Igbo tradition. Anekwu and other leaders from Haiti, Brazil, and Barbados believe the souls of the rebel Igbo were still trapped in the water. After all these years, they never left. They died of violent death. So, in 2016, Aneku and others performed a rite at Dunbar Creek called Ikwa Ozo, which means something like celebrating the dead. Their actions, that rite, fulfilled the words now written on the historic marker for the rebel Igbo, 
which Amy Mitchell Roberts has known all her life. The water brought us, and the water will take us away. For NPR News, I'm Natalie Mendenhall in St. Simons Island. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats. I talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? This weekend on Juneteenth, the 30th Trumpet Awards airs on Bounce TV. The awards were created to recognize the accomplishments of African Americans. So we wanted to sit down with the creator of the awards, Zernona Clayton. At almost 91 years old, she has had an amazing life. She's been a broadcaster, a broadcast executive, an entrepreneur, and most notably, a civil rights icon. She was a confidant to Martin Luther King Jr. and her deep belief that black and white people could learn to get along, persuaded her to get to know, really get to know, a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan back in 1968. What happened next surprised even her. He decided he had to change, and he announced through a press conference that he was coming out of the organization and credited a Black woman with changing his negative attitude, and I was that Black woman. When I spoke with Zernona Clayton, I asked her what she was most struck by when she looked back on her many accomplishments. I turned 90. <laughs> it's hard yes. to say. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, a year and a half ago, that sounded so old to me. And I just said, you know, that's a long time to live on this earth. And then I asked myself, what have I been doing for 90 years? Are you kidding and me? Have I been occupying space or have I done something worthwhile? Those are the questions I asked myself. And then I said, well, in order for me to find out, I'm going to jot down some of the memorable moments of my life. Yeah. And I looked at my record and I said, oh, that's not a bad record <laughs> at all. Well, I think it's safe to say that you've done more than fair in your 90 years on this earth so far. I want to go back to your early years a little bit. You grew up in Oklahoma, and even though segregation was a fact of life back then, you have said that as a child, you didn't have to confront like the harsher aspects of segregation. Can you talk about that? Like, How were you insulated to some extent when you were growing up from the more painful consequences of segregation? You know, when you are living your life, you're not questioning, you're just living it. And I grew up in a segregated environment, as you now know. And so it wasn't a question. It was just sort of like I lived in a black neighborhood, went to a black school. Our white neighbors went to the white school. And that's the way it was. 
I had one advantage, I think, that I use as my propulsion into the life that I ended up trying to manage. And that was my father was a well-respected member of the community to the point that even the police chief and the mayor would sometimes come to our house to privately talk to my father. They were both white, right? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Mm -hmm. What to do with uh, the guys they picked up trying to break into a car or some misdemeanor. Mm. You don't want to throw them in jail and keep them there for months. So they'd come down and ask Daddy, what do you think we ought to do with this guy? Mm. You saw these two white men respect your father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which means that while they came on a mission, I saw them coming into our house. So I saw white people all the time. And so I grew up, fortunately, not hating white people and not being afraid of them. That was the main thing, not being afraid. Because, you know, a lot of black people have just been afraid of the white man because we've been treated so severely, poorly, that is. And so I didn't have that. I had the better side of the bad life. But my father wouldn't want that anyway. He taught us that there's goodness in everybody. So as you grew older, how did you come to learn the uglier, more brutal side of segregation? Like, are there any moments that imprinted on your mind? I still feel the pain and the suffering of my first experience. My sister and I and our two boyfriends, the four of us, went out because I was in college. So you see, I was well over 18. But Somewhere in that age, that's a little old for learning the lesson of the real segregation directly. We had gone out to an event, and on the way back to the dormitory, we said, you know, everybody wanted a hamburger. So we saw a hamburger place. We stopped, went in, and we just had such a wonderful evening. We walked in there, the four of us, and this white owner was standing there with his butcher knife. And we said, we want some hamburgers. And he said, you get out of here. And he held up the knife. And he said, if you don't leave the premises now, I will cut all your heads off. You know you don't belong here, so get out. And we didn't know that we weren't welcome. We knew it then. So painful. And of course, scared us to death. We weren't expecting it. We just thought it was a hamburger place. You go in to get a hamburger, not to cause trouble. I still feel that pain. Do you remember when you first decided to get involved in activism? Like, was there a particular point for you where you decided, I need to do something? Yes. When I walked out of that hamburger place, I've gotten involved in so many causes because I felt like we got to fight the dragons of prejudice. Let me ask you, you drove Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to the airport to catch his flight to Memphis the day before his assassination. And in the days that followed, you were in the house with Coretta Scott King and the family trying to support them. When you think about how incredibly divided the country was back then, how overtly racist it was. What do you make of where we are today, more than a half century later? Like, do you think progress has been too slow? Progress has been slow. But I think about, when I think about Dr. King's feelings about life as he knew it, he was such a patient man in spirit. 
that he was willing to wait, but he knew we were waiting too long for equity in our society. He felt very strongly that white men and women can love us as black men and women. And he said, God created each of us in his own image. And underneath the skin, we're all the same. God created us. And in the godly image, we can love each other. And so he was kind of admonishing us all the time, do what you can to love everybody. And I wish that everybody could do the same thing. Now, that's a tall wish uh, that you could put that thought in everybody's heart. But he said, if we talk it enough and act it out enough, we could make it a reality. And I tell you, I will always be grateful that I lived close to him, worked for him, loved him a lot, tried to follow some of his teachings, did the best I could, and can still carry his thoughtful life pattern to this day. Civil rights activist, Zernona Clayton, thank you so much for being with us. It has been an honor, a true honor to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you. I heard people talk about anger on, on the Saturday program, and I was just thinking about that incident. And um, what I've been doing since that day is listening to um, specific music like uh, Fela Kuti or Bob Marley. I might listen to... Um, Old, old programs of Dr. Wilson, uh, Neely Fuller, uh, The Cows. Um, and also, I've been listening to motivational speakers. I think one is called, uh, one of the guys is Eric Thomas, a black guy. And another guy, a black guy is uh, Les Brown. And that's been helping me out a lot. Um, like, they, they still make, like, jungle noises and do weird things. But everything that I've been doing, um, and then, Along with um, working out, thanks to Emmy, I started working out again. It is Sunday morning, and we are at Kenneth Hahn State Park in South L.A. Hey, how are you? How are you? I love this big. And it's crowded. It's just a sea of beautiful black and brown people. Marley Ralph helps organize a free yoga class on a grassy meadow at the park. And every week, hundreds of people show up. It's just people who are old, who are young, uh, people who are new to yoga, who are who have been doing yoga for years. It's just a sea of, of diverse individuals who are all here to heal and to enjoy themselves. And it's just, it's a very beautiful thing to see. Now this isn't just a class for fitness. Marley and her cousin started it two years ago as a protest against black lives that were lost to violence. And now, when so many groups that formed after the death of George Floyd are no longer around, this local community movement is still going strong. KCRW's Megan Jamerson picks it up from here. It all started in Mid-City at L.A. High Memorial Park. It was June 2020, and Marley Ralph's cousin, Etienne Maurice, organized a protest run in memory of Ahmaud Arbery. Marley was helping out. Over 400 people showed up. And then it was right before we were about to start the run, and Etienne was like, should we do some stretches? You should lead us through some stretches. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna lead us through some stretches. 
stretches. I was a little nervous at first. Um, but then I, I did it. And um, it was just an amazing thing. It felt like chaos in that month. Like it felt like, like just things were popping off every single day and you just didn't have any kind of moment to like take a pause but within that moment I looked around and people were silent I had a moment of just silence of just breathing of just existing and I think that we all felt what that felt like of having a pause amongst all of this chaos and then it really moved both of us and Etienne was like yo we should probably come back tomorrow and do this again <laughs> come back next <laughs> we should weekend probably do this again and so we did and then um, we did 10 weeks of protesting on Saturdays and yoga on Sundays and then yoga was the one that kept going was our former protest and now here we are two years later the cousins decided to call their wellness movement Walk Good LA. Marley is a yoga instructor. Etienne Maurice is a film producer. And his sister, Ivy Coco Maurice, who is a content creator and entrepreneur, is the third founding member of the group. She says all the free activities they host now, including yoga, runs, and hikes, are rooted in lessons they learned from their grandmother. Even the name Walk Good LA comes from the Jamaican euphemism she raised them on. Walk good means to go about your day in good stride, to take care, to make sure you look both ways when crossing the street, whatever that means to go about your day in a healthy and safe way. That's what walk good means. Know that you have the potential to be a better version of yourself when you leave this space. The trio are tight knit with a contagious amount of love for each other. Brother, sister, cousin, besties. <laughs> That's part of what kept them going, says Etienne. Walk Good LA would not be successful if we weren't out here every Sunday, you know. Committed. Committed, committed. And you know, if there's, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of other organizations that started back in 2020 that are no longer here. And, and we haven't stopped. Maybe you stay right where you are. Or maybe you bring your left hand to your heart and your right hand to your lower belly. Right now, at this space at Kenneth Hahn Park, the hour-long yoga class is underway. Allowing your inhales and your exhales to fill. Lenny Gator has been coming to these free classes since they started two years ago, when he learned that they were a response to violence against Black lives. It's just a different way to respond, you know what I mean? And a way that uplifts us, builds community, makes us stronger, you know, makes us feel better. He's very into the health benefits from doing this yoga class. You know, no, it helps with flexibility and it helps with balance, core strength, and like, you know, just overall, my chakras are aligned and all that, you know, so it's good. Hold up, that sounds like sarcasm. I mean, I was kind of joking with the chakras aligned thing, but I actually do think that my chakras are aligned and um, the community, you know, just connecting with the community, like, I almost always know someone when I go somewhere. Oh, I know you from Walker. Nearby, Christine Gomez brought her husband with her to introduce him to the practice of yoga. I was like, come do yoga with black people. <laughs> like, it's all people of color and it's a really cool vibe. Her husband, Joe, likes the idea of making this a weekly couple's outing after noticing how the class made him feel. I feel 
I feel like it's more open. You know, I was a little hesitant at first, but then now with doing the yoga, like, I want to say for the first time, it felt really good. And that's the simple feeling of relaxation that Etienne hopes participants leave with and are able to carry with them throughout the week. I want people to remember to just breathe and that focus on what is in your control. If you have no control over it, it probably doesn't serve you. And I think it's just so easy to forget to breathe. I think yoga is like is like how I look at life, you know. You're put in these really awkward, difficult positions, but the only thing you could really rely on is your breath and the willingness to do the next pose, <laughs> to do the next thing, whatever that thing might be. One thing we always just say when we we were protesting and say, this is a movement, not a moment. And we've legit created a movement out of healing and community. As the class nears the end, everyone lays down on their backs for the last resting pose called Shavasana. The instructor, Mel Douglas, leads the group through a meditation. I leave you with this. Filled with quiet joy for no reason save the fact that I am alive. The message I receive is clear. There's no time to lose from loving. No place but here to offer kindness. No day but this to be my true unfettered self and pass the flame from heart to heart. This is the only moment that exists. So simple, so exquisite and so very real. I am filled with quiet joy for no reason save the fact that I am alive. For KCRW, I'm Megan Jamerson. Black babies cost less. You've heard about birth doulas, right? Doulas offer emotional and physical support during pregnancy and childbirth. Minnesota is among a handful of states that cover doula care for people on Medicaid, a program known as medical assistance in Minnesota. Researchers say doula services can help shrink health inequities for pregnant women of color and their babies, but few women use the benefit. So last year, one of the state's leading health insurance companies and a doula training organization set out to understand why. In the next installment of our North Star Journey series, Catherine Richard reports on the barriers they've found and how they're fixing them. Doulas are not medically trained professionals. They're physical and emotional guides who support clients through the childbirth process, starting in the early days of pregnancy and ending in the postpartum period. There's something so important about having somebody come into the arguably the most vulnerable space and time and just understanding where you're coming from. That's Ashley Kid-Taji, doula and outreach coordinator for Everyday Miracles, an organization based in Minneapolis that helps clients connect with doulas. Research shows that women of color and their babies face higher rates of death and more medical problems during childbirth, disparities that are connected to generations of institutional racism embedded in the healthcare system. 
Kid Taji says doulas can help improve birth outcomes, especially when doulas share racial and ethnic backgrounds that are similar to their clients. Having somebody who looks like you in the birth room can make a difference medically, emotionally, physically, spiritually on every level. But there are too few doulas of color in Minnesota. So Everyday Miracles has been organizing free training sessions aimed at bringing more of them into the workforce. In a darkened room in a Duluth hotel, birth doula trainer Akmiri Sakira reads a poem about her work. In our skin that reflects our ancestors who have walked under the sun of the ancient land. Incense is burning. In the corner, there's a cluster of birthing objects and art. It's a calming atmosphere for Sakira to teach three women how to be doulas, an intensive training that will last four days for full certification. They'll watch videos about birth. They'll learn how to assist in breastfeeding and to decipher food labels to better advise pregnant clients on nutrition. Researchers haven't investigated whether doulas have an impact on death rates or birth complications among pregnant and birthing women. But University of Minnesota public health professor Katie Bacchus-Kazamanal, who has studied the role of doulas in the birth process, says having a source of support who isn't a family member during pregnancy has proven positive outcomes Everything from higher levels of satisfaction and um, feelings of agency to things like uh, lower rates of preterm birth, lower use of pain medication, of um, surgical birth, of cesarean birth. Uh, when it's not needed. Bacchus Kazamanal says easing the path into parenthood matters even more for people of color. Especially for uh, Black and Indigenous folks who are birthing in a system that we know suffers structural racism and that we know produces inequitable outcomes, not just at childbirth, but across the, the lifespan. In 2013, Minnesota became the second state to provide Medicaid coverage for doula care. The program disproportionately serves people of color, a population that's more likely to have high-risk pregnancies, see more preterm births, and more NICU admissions. Yet few people on Medicaid use the doula benefit. Something wasn't working, and we needed to try to understand what was going on. That's Amy Bloomquist, Director of Population Health Design at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Minnesota, the state's largest nonprofit health insurer. Blue Cross partnered with Everyday Miracles to find out what was holding the program back. What they discovered was a tangle of challenges and barriers. For starters, Medicaid reimburses doulas less than $500 per pregnancy. Bloomquist says that's roughly a third of what people pay out of pocket for the service. You only have so many slots in your calendar. And when you can get less than $500 for a slot versus $1,500 for a slot, it's a no-brainer. So Blue Cross doubled doula pay for births covered by Medicaid. Still not quite as much as a private pay patient, but closer. And it worked with Everyday Miracles to submit more claims at regular intervals. So doulas would be paid throughout the process instead of one payment at the beginning of their relationship with their client and another when the baby was born. Director of Everyday Miracles Debbie Prudholm says these are big improvements because babies show up whenever they want to. Doulas do very, very valuable work. It is hard work. It's a lot of time. It's putting your life on hold. But Prudhomme says that reimbursement rates are still too low. But fact remains, you can train doulas all day long, and if they can't make a livable wage, we're not 
taking that barrier away. Just paying more doesn't solve the problem of having too few doulas of color in the workforce, Bloomquist says, especially in rural areas. So Blue Cross also launched a free training program. So far, 40 people have completed the training. Duluth's recent session included Natasha Lancor. As a black woman, Lancor says her interest in doula work is personal. During the birth of her own children, Lancor says she had no one there to advocate for her, no one to support her in breastfeeding. I've always experienced birth as um, kind of violent. And when I was introduced to um, doula birth, um, it was something that I felt like every woman should have access to, to have a support in the community. Oyate Nixon, another doula trainee, did have that support for the birth of her child. Her doula was familiar with indigenous traditions. Nixon, who identifies as Native American, says it improved her birth experience, and she wants to share that support with her clients. I am excited to have that sigh of relief when they see me walk through the door and they're like, wow, she's Native too. You know, it's like it's that automatic sense of relativity between us that I think is very important to them feeling comfortable. Bacchus Casamano, whose research influenced the state's decision to expand Medicaid coverage to doula services, says that the Blue Cross model shows promise. I'm so happy to see the attention to greater investment in doula services, the attention to racial and geographic equity in the distribution of doula services. This is an example of things going well. At the end of the year, Bloomquist says Blue Cross will analyze its work. Did more Medicaid beneficiaries of color use doulas? Did they have a good experience? The insurer will tweak the program based on what they learn. But one thing that won't change, Bloomquist says, those higher reimbursement rates for doulas are permanent. Catherine Richard, NPR News, Duluth. In the United Kingdom, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his Conservative Party are facing criticism over a new migration deal with Rwanda. As part of a resettlement plan, migrants who arrive illegally on British shores would be flown 4,000 miles south to Rwanda for processing and resettling. But the first flight scheduled to depart yesterday was canceled. Amna Nawaz has the story. The plane was ready, the tarmac clear. But the first flight scheduled to take asylum seekers from Britain to Rwanda yesterday was canceled minutes before takeoff. Over 30 people were expected to be transferred under a sweeping new immigration policy, but a ruling by the European Commission for Human Rights halted deportations. These repeated legal barriers... Still in the House of Commons today, British Home Secretary Preeti Patel said the government will press on with their plan. We believe that we are fully compliant with our domestic and international obligations, and preparations for our future flights and the next flights have already begun. In April, the UK and Rwanda brokered a deal to send asylum seekers on one-way tickets to the East African nation, where their asylum applications would be processed. Proponents say this would deter criminal gangs from trafficking people and stop illegal migration into the UK, much of it across the English Channel. Their argument is that if people think they're going to be sent 4,000 miles away, then they won't even attempt to make the crossing. 
Daniel Sohedge is an expert on international refugee law and campaign manager for the group Love 146 UK, an international human rights organization. He says the policy is in line with the government's post-Brexit agenda. They want to reduce the number of people coming into the UK seeking asylum and control borders is the line which is used quite often ever since the Brexit referendum. This has been a major key point for the government and they've just gradually increased the hostility of immigration policies. Under the new policy, the UK has offered Rwanda over $150 million to house refugees in facilities like this one, with up to five years of support. Rwanda's already home to over 130,000 migrants and refugees, and yesterday, Yolanda Makolo, a government spokesperson, defended the deal. We don't think it's immoral to offer a home to people, something that we have done here uh, for more than 30 years. Inside the UK, the issue has divided public opinion. Cross-country protests erupted earlier this week, urging the government to drop the deal. Activists also worry about Rwanda's human rights record. The head of the UN's refugee agency, Filippo Grandi, denounced the plan as irresponsible. I think we've been so clear over the last few weeks that we believe that this is all wrong. This is all wrong, this deal, for so many different reasons. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he is standing his ground. But what we're going to get on and do, Mr Speaker, is continue to take the tough decisions to take this country forward and uh, decisions that are on the side of the British people. A July hearing will decide the policy's legality. Meanwhile, the fate of many asylum seekers in the UK hangs in the balance. For more on this, I'm joined by Zoe Gardner from the Joint Council for Welfare of Immigrants. Her organization is among those representing the potential deportees, which won yesterday's legal case. Zoe Gardner, welcome to the News Hour, and thank you for joining us. So your group represented two people, I believe, who were on that flight yesterday, as we just reported, canceled within just a few minutes before it was scheduled to take off. Take me inside that kind of flurry of case-by-case appeals that unfolded in the last few days. How did it come down to the last minute like that? Oh, well, it's an extremely stressful situation, especially not least, of course, for the refugees themselves and for their family members, some of whom are here in the UK, who are seeing you know, the, the people that they want desperately to be reunited with snatched away. Um, the reason why it, get, it comes down to the last minute like that is that the government only um, has to provide notification of a deportation five days before it actually happens. So then they complain that there's all these last minute legal challenges. But the reality is, is that people don't have an opportunity before that. And it really does go down to the line very often. So tell me about those two clients. Where are they from? Why were they in the UK? And what would a deportation to Rwanda have meant for them? Well, one of them's a Kurdish Iraqi and one of them's a Syrian young man. Um, and uh, the Syrian man was uh, targeted by the uh, regime in Syria. He, he had to run away at a moment's notice. Um, there's no safe route, no visa to travel to the UK in order to claim asylum. But he has two sisters living here in the UK. And when my colleague told him about uh, the letter, you know, he was like, I've received this letter. What does it mean? What is it? What is it telling me about my life? And she said to him, it means you're going to be sent to Rwanda. He said to her, what's Rwanda? And I think it, it just takes an incredibly 
enormous level of callousness not to engage with the humanity of that situation. We're talking about a refugee who has escaped devastation and war, who has come to our country to seek our protection, and we're proposing to just tear his life away and send him off on a one-way ticket around the world to a country that we can basically bribe economically because we're so much richer than them to take in the people that we don't want. It's not okay. And it, it makes the Rwandan government, which, by the way, is not a democracy, it's not a country where political dissent is tolerated, you know, it, it gives them a propaganda coup. They can say they're partnering with the United Kingdom government and they're helping to deal with this issue. And it makes them look good, but it makes us look terrible. Um, and we really, really shouldn't be engaging in this with any other country, really. The right place for refugees who are trying to get to the UK to have their asylum cases heard is here in the UK. And we should note some refugees, many refugees are allowed in. I mean, on the one hand, in this moment, you have the UK creating what I understand to be a special visa program to welcome people from Ukraine who are fleeing war, thousands of, of people, tens of thousands. And on the other hand, you have this deportation flight, which consisted, correct me if I'm wrong, mostly of people from Iraq and Afghanistan and Sudan, and the UK saying, you are not allowed to stay here. You have to go to Rwanda to seek asylum. So how does the government answer to something that seems seems very obviously like a, a racist double standard. Well, it absolutely seems to, to people up and down the UK like a racist double standard. It, and it, it absolutely is. There's no reply to that. Um, the government set in place um, a, a visa, as you say, for Ukrainians to come here. And within five minutes of them putting that online, 100,000 people in the UK had, had volunteered to offer up their homes to welcome people from Ukraine fleeing that war. People, you know, fleeing Syria, the same bombs Putin has attacked you know, cities and, and, and communities in Syria, just as he has in Ukraine. Um, but those people have no visa route to come to the UK. And so they are forced into these desperate um, journeys that enrich smuggling gangs. And what we need to do is actually introduce safe routes for everybody to have an accessible asylum system for all, because we really welcome um, the warmth that has been shown to Ukrainian refugees. But it isn't right that people from the Middle East and from Africa and, you know, black and brown people are, are being treated so differently and so cruelly. So what's happening politically and culturally in the UK right now that would create conditions where this kind of policy is, is accepted? Politicians think that this is the time to push forward with it, as the Home Secretary says that they will. The Prime Minister's position is actually really hanging by a thread right now. Um, he's been exposed for having broke the law, the laws he made during our lockdown to protect us all from the COVID pandemic. He broke the law during his time in office, and then he lied to us about it and said there were no parties when it turns out there was party after party during lockdown. Um, and obviously, the faith of the public has just gone way down in terms of trust in our politicians and trust in the prime minister. And so he's trying to shore up his position, change the conversation, talk about something different. Oh, look over there. There's some foreigners. We should blame them for our problems. So I really do hope that the courts will find that this is very clearly against um, the letter of the Refugee Convention and therefore that it's illegal. That is Zoe Gardner from the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants joining us tonight. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> the Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink 
under, under Trump on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in stage white supremacy. So you see, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. A nascent neo-Nazi group in New England is attempting to recruit new members. It's doing this by raising its public profile and latching on to Republican talking points that were once considered French. For member station WGBH in Boston, here's senior investigative reporter Philip Martin. A video posted last summer on social media provided a rare look inside the strategic planning of an upstart neo-Nazi movement. In the video, Chris Hood the 23-year-old founder of the Nationalist Socialist Club, or NSC-131, gave instructions to a University of Massachusetts Lowell student named Liam McNeil. Well, if you're in college, you should be getting together with all the other guys on campus that think like you, circling all the frat parties and bullying the chicks that race mix, and just start yeah, dominating the parties, take over the campus. You could do that. Hood and 23-year-old McNeil are part of a tiny but growing clique of white nationalists who have begun loudly announcing their presence across New England. I mean, we're pretty much like a, a frat, but racist. Oren Siegel describes Massachusetts-based NSC-131 differently. It's a small neo-Nazi group. Siegel is president of the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism. Those who identify with this group view themselves as soldiers, essentially, who are at war with the Jewish-controlled system that is plotting the extinction of the white race. Siegel says the group appears to have escalated its activities in the wake of last year's attempted insurrection in the U.S. Capitol, where members of NSC-131 were present. This greatly concerns Gregory Freed, professor of philosophy at Boston College, and an expert on authoritarianism. We should use January 6 as a reality check. Those were the shock troops of an attempted coup on the American political system. In New England, NSC-131 have hung racist banners from highway overpasses, rallied in front of hospitals, and joined mainstream conservatives to protest vaccine mandates and anti-racist education. The group has conducted martial arts and firearms training in state forests. Law enforcement officials have taken notice, including U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins, who is coordinating with colleagues in the region. All of the U.S. attorneys in New England, we've been discussing this, not just with guns running through our various states or human trafficking running through our various states. There's also hate running through our various states. Rollins has suggested that NSC-131 and other far-right extremists should be classified as street gangs. In January, 30 neo-Nazis rallied near Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital protesting programs to establish racial equity in medicine. The rhetoric of the far-right demonstrators was identical to a patently false assertion made days earlier by former President Donald Trump at a rally in Arizona. The left is now rationing life-saving therapeutics based on race, discriminating against and denigrating, just denigrating white people to determine who lives and who dies. Robert Treston, director of the Anti-Defamation League of New England, 
fears that Trump's amplification of white grievances has helped NSC-131 boost its membership. And we know this because their demonstration in front of the Brigham and Women's Hospital actually drew more people than we've seen at previous protests. In March, as floats passed by at the St. Patrick's Day Parade in South Boston, two dozen NSC members unfurled a banner reading, Keep Boston Irish. Some in the crowd reacted with bafflement and curiosity. Others, like lifelong resident William Good, who is white, were outraged that the group had assumed they would find support in this neighborhood, once a bastion of violent white resistance to school desegregation. I don't like Nazis. This neighborhood's still recovering from an ugly history of racism, and these people want part of my community, and they're not welcome. NSC-131 received a similarly frosty reception on the campus of UMass Lowell, where Liam McNeil hoped to recruit. A sophomore who would only give her first name, Mary, who was white, said she's not interested. It makes me wildly uncomfortable, and I think it poses a safety risk for the other students here. But Awa, a member of the Black Student Union, who also gave only her first name, said that a white extremist presence on campus was par for the course. Once Trump became president, a lot of people got that courage to come out and show their true colors. The ADL reported that incidents of white supremacist propaganda more than doubled on campuses from 2018 to 2019 to an historic high of more than 600 incidents nationwide that year. Over the past year, dozens of students have protested McNeil's presence on this campus, saying he should be expelled. But the administration said it could not kick him out because of the principle of academic freedom. Still, the pressure seems to have taken a toll. In a recent phone call, McNeil's father told me that the protest had an impact and Liam McNeil is no longer enrolled at the university. For NPR News, I'm Philip Martin in Boston. They tried to frame me, but it won't work. A Minneapolis man pulled over in March in Wisconsin says police took nearly $10,000 from him even though he was never charged with a crime. His case is an example of the burden that can fall on those who have cash, vehicles, or property seized by police. Despite a 2018 law intended to limit police's ability to seize assets from people who aren't convicted of crimes, the practice still happens. Rich Kramer reports. Clifford Skinner's mom died in March. He wanted to help his father pay for the funeral, so he says he took $9,600 when he and his family drove from Minneapolis to Gary, Indiana. It was almost all the money he had, but Skinner says his father wouldn't take it. On the way home, Skinner was sleeping in the car when a Wisconsin state trooper pulled his daughter over for speeding near Osseo. He uh, approached me and said that he smelled marijuana coming from the vehicle. I informed the state trooper that I... I'm a medicinal cannabis user, and my doctor prescribed me that as medication. Skinner says the trooper took less than a quarter ounce of marijuana and seized all of the money. He received municipal citations, but was never charged with a crime. Still, the state patrol wouldn't give Skinner's money back. The agency told WPR it wouldn't comment on an ongoing investigation. Skinner, who is black, says his money was referred to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency on suspicion it was tied to drug trafficking. 
He denies that. Guilty until proven innocent. And that's basically where I'm sitting at right now. An innocent man that got robbed by the police and been unjustly done because of my skin complexion. Skinner's fiance, Trina Lewis, says they were saving the money for a down payment on a future house. She wasn't there during the traffic stop, but says it traumatized five of their kids who waited in a squad car as the officer searched Skinner's van for more drugs to no avail. You know, my kids, as we see the police driving down the street, taking them to daycare, they tense up. They get worried. In 2018, a bipartisan group of Wisconsin legislators reformed state law aimed at preventing forfeitures from individuals unless they're convicted of a crime. But there are exceptions. Money or property referred to federal agencies like the DEA can be forfeited even if charges are never filed. And state or local law enforcement can keep proceeds from those forfeitures if a person is deported, flees the jurisdiction, or doesn't claim cash or property within nine months. Dan Albin is the co-director of the National Initiative to End Forfeiture Abuse. He calls it policing for profit. That, I think, is highly problematic when the federal government is encouraging state and local law enforcement to not comply with their very own state laws and instead uh, simply participate in a, in a federal program that allows them to sidestep or circumvent those protections. At least half of any proceeds from state-level forfeitures must go to Wisconsin's school fund. But if a forfeiture goes federal, state and local law enforcement can keep all proceeds sent back by the U.S. Department of Justice following a conviction. In 2020, police in Wisconsin reported around $775,000 in cash and property forfeitures tied to convictions. That same year, the U.S. Department of Justice sent nearly $2 million in forfeited proceeds back to agencies in Wisconsin. Skinner suspects the state patrol referred his money to the DEA in order to get a second opinion after the district attorney didn't file criminal charges. In Brown County, the sheriff's office received around $117,000 from the feds in 2020 for seizures it made. Lieutenant Matt Ronk is the director of the Brown County Drug Task Force. He says seizing assets is an important part of fighting criminal organizations, and he says his team isn't disproportionately seizing money during investigations. But I also have a real problem leaving drug proceeds, uh, illicit gains, predatory funds that were taken off of innocent people, innocent victims that either by force or by victimizing them with addiction. As for Skinner, he's hired a lawyer at an estimated cost of $4,000 in hopes of getting his $9,600 back from the DEA. Rich Kramer, Wisconsin Public Radio. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people comes say from it's China. racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. A 64-year-old grandmother assaulted and robbed. A 52-year-old woman shot in the head with a flare gun. Researchers say hate crimes targeting Asian Americans have soared. Business and civil rights groups have been demanding that something change. And in one California neighborhood, it did. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports from Oakland. 
This time last year, Oakland's Chinatown seemed like a ghost town as the latest COVID variant combined with a wave of thefts and brutal attacks against Asian Americans to unnerve the community. Many customers and tourists stayed away, and business owners like insurance broker Jennifer G would close up early. Our elderly being hurt, people are getting robbed on the street. There's even like carjacking or car windows being broken into, so it really affects the safety of Chinatown and that's why they don't want to stay here late. But today, things are better. People are staying out a little later. Businesses have bounced back. That's due in part to an all-volunteer Chinatown citizen patrol G helps organize called the Blue Angels. Victor Kwong has run a Chinese herbal medicine store here for 30 years. He got involved in the patrol effort early on. Chinatown is like a big family. And during the attacks and the news, my young son asked me, Dad, will there be a Chinatown in the future? Will it exist for us? The volunteer patrol looks more like a glee club that's been to a home security superstore than menacing crime fighters. Young and old, teens to retirees are dressed in bright blue vests with black baseball caps that say security. They walk the neighborhood three days a week equipped with cameras, walkie-talkies, air horns, and powder blue umbrellas. Just to kind of deter any crime for self-defense if anything happens. G says if patrol members see crime, they turn on their body cameras, maybe sound their air horn, and dial a direct line to a local Oakland police liaison officer. Important, too, she says, the patrols act as a kind of bridge to the police for community members who may not speak English well and are often wary of police. And they don't necessarily know how to report crime when it happens to them. So that presence, so they know there's someone local that will care about what happened to them and be able to relay that to the police. Businesswoman Eva Liu says she's grateful for the patrols. She's eight months pregnant and runs a small import-export business here. When a thief recently tried to steal goods off her shelf, she says, she was petrified. But she sounded her air horn and the loud blast got the attention of the volunteers and the thief took off. But not before he shouted an anti-Asian slur, she says, and hurled a bottle at her. He threw the bottle at me. I turned to protect the baby, and the bottle hit my back. He's yelling at me, calling me names. It was scary. But the air horn and patrols helped scare him for sure. Most of the patrol members are Asian Americans who work or live in the neighborhood, but not all. I was an ex-boxer. My main thing is I don't like bullies. They see an old person, they need to be honored. 71-year-old retiree Bob Batnett shows up for most every patrol with his umbrella, pepper spray, and his head on a swivel. Batnett says he's built relationships here over years coming to Chinatown for traditional medicine, food, and friendships. I love the culture. I love the street sales here. Look at, see, here's an old man right here. He's out with his daughter. This is beautiful. It's family. This citizen effort is only part of the solution. Oakland police have also increased foot and car patrols in Chinatown and appointed a new liaison officer who the volunteer patrol members say speaks some Cantonese. The combined efforts have helped drive down property crime and assaults in this part of Oakland, at least. Leron Armstrong is the city's police chief. Whether that group is going to blow whistles like some of them do or have their body-worn cameras on and going to record an event, it makes it a hard place to commit crime when the criminal sees multiple people watching. 
But you have to wonder, are citizen patrols really a viable long-term solution? And are they doing anything to address the deeper anti-Asian sentiment underlying some of the attacks? On a walk here with Carl Chan, head of the Chinatown Chamber of Commerce, I ask him if he's at all concerned about the patrols backfiring. This is not about like being a hero. It's a group effort. And they are trained to make phone calls immediately and contact the necessary authorities. So you would rather they deter and report they're not out there to try to intervene? Absolutely. We don't want to intervene because, you know, this is not their job. Chan says the patrols have been instrumental in bringing back not only people and customers, but rebuilding the confidence of the businesses and their employees. People here, he says, now just feel safer. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Oakland. Mr. Doe, going on in your country right now in Vietnam is 4,000 little kids who are in quarantine camps away from their parents because of this fake scamdemic. And you come to my country and you act like one of these communist parasites, I ask you to go the f*** back to Vietnam. Lord. Hi, yes, the family, along with community members, gathered outside the Van Nuys courthouse where he was scheduled to appear. Now, this Asian-American family says that they were physically attacked by this man after he made racial slurs. Really? Yeah. Oh, you're so Asian. Yeah, and you bumped our car. What the f*** is wrong with you? I am so Asian. God. Now, that video was captured back in May. A mother-daughter, Narissa and Patricia Roque, seen in the video, were in a drive through at McDonald's in North Hollywood when they say the driver in line behind them bumped their car unprovoked. He pulled up alongside them, and they recorded him making racial slurs, mocking them, and they say he threatened to kill them. Now, you also see on the video Gabriel Roque, husband and father to the women. They say he stepped in when the stranger tried to open their car door. Things escalated into a physical altercation between the two men. Mrs. Roque also got out of the car to intervene and claims the man choked her. Now, the family said Good Samaritans jumped in to help, and that's how they were able to get away from him. Today, the family and community activists demanded a full investigation and his arrest. He just choking on me, and then he hold my hand. I can't even reach him because he's he's six footer. And then that's the time that I went to the to the floor. When he had his hands on your neck, what was going through your mind at that moment? I thought I'm going to die. I don't feel safe anywhere I go. I, I see every man on the street. I still think it's him. I may not have been physically assaulted, but the mental and emotional trauma that he has brought to me might as well already already been physical. People out here say that they're outraged that he hasn't been arrested and that he was released with a promise to appear in court. The court records show that Nicholas Weber faces battery charges, but he did not show up for his court arraignment. Now, we have confirmed that there is a bench warrant out for his arrest, and his bail is now set at $250,000. Live in Van Nuys, Kimberly Chang, KTLA 5 News.
Evening, I'm Maurice Dubois. And I'm Christine Johnson. Tonight, a Newburgh man is facing a hate crime charge over the road rage incident. CBS 2's Kevin Rincon spoke with a pastor who says he feared for both his and his son's life. And we want to warn you, the video of the encounter is disturbing. Pastor Rob McLemore was driving along a busy road in Newburgh when he was cut off by a man in a pickup truck. I look in my rearview mirror, mirror and I see him coming up to the car. He was holding a box cutter that looked very much like a knife. He was walking to my car, put his hand on the window, and he said, I'll stab you and, and, and with, the, with the knife, and I'll stab you, I'll stab you. McLemore says he was headed back to his church with his teenage son to close up. This happened on Saturday. Instead, he pulled into the parking lot of this Chinese restaurant and started recording some more. Nobody would believe me that this happened to me. Nobody. I didn't believe it myself. The man could be heard yelling racial slurs the entire time. Police, they arrested 60-year-old William J. Ryan. He's now facing a hate crime charge. The police chief says his racist threats were not only harmful to the victim in this case, but echoes deep within our city. Mayor Torrance Harvey says the incident is not a reflection of this town, but rather a reflection of the polarized climate we're in. There are people in our, in our country that won't let this social construct go. We're all part of the human race. He says what happened is a reminder that while we've certainly come a long way, there's more work to be done. It lets us know, you know, it just puts you back into the 1950s. As for McLemore, he's also a lieutenant with the Wallkill Police Department. He says he plans to carry his firearm with him from here on out. His message to the suspect? I would say to him, number one, because I am a spiritual person, I forgive you. Wheel out, wheel out, wheel out. When are we as black people? going to have the level of self-respect and courage to really come out of the slave role. Slave obey your master, turn the other cheek. May sir, you turn the other cheek and you'll get your reward in heaven. And that's a slave role. We haven't maybe thought about it in those terms. Because I am a spiritual person, I forgive you. But number two, you have to face the consequences for your actions. And I hope that you get the help that you need. That suspect did make claims in the video of being an off-duty state trooper. They say that is not the case and that he has no affiliation with any law enforcement agency. In Newburgh, Kevin Rincon, CBS 2 News. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, Instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to 
conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. A white male decided to kill an eight-year-old black child and says he's the victim. Let's put up the picture of this white male full mass. This monster killed an eight-year-old black child while shooting at cars. He says he's actually the victim. He said this during his bond hearing. His name is Charles Montgomery Allen. He's the suspect in question. Let me show you a picture of the eight-year-old he killed. Look at that. Aquarius Dunham is dead, eight years old. Had his entire life ahead of him. The eight-year-old child is from New Hampshire was shot and killed in Florence County, South Carolina on May 28th by a white male who was randomly shooting at cars, according to the report. The eight-year-old was on vacation with his family. Imagine on a vacation with your family. Charles Montgomery Allen shot the child and his father as they pass by in their vehicle. According to the coroner reports, the eight year old was shot in the neck and died following the day from his injuries. His father who was shot in the leg survived and is expected to make a full recovery. As a father, I know he wishes it would have been him rather than his child. Allen was arrested and charged with one count of murder, nine counts of attempted murder. Discharging a firearm into an occupied vehicle and possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. Put up the picture of the eight year old again. I can't imagine what that eight year old felt as he was dying in front of his father. I can't imagine what that father felt as he witnessed the death of his eight-year-old child. According to the police, Allen shot and hit multiple cars that passed by his home on Old River Road in Florence. Local law enforcement told ABC 15 News that they were in fact familiar with Allen. And that he had a history with the police. They knew he was dangerous. During his bond hearing on Wednesday, Allen told the judge that he was the victim. He said, and I quote, can I say that I have been a victim here? Well over two years, every device I have has been hacked, every device. My cell phones, my TV. I can't even get a signal at my home to watch TV. Like there was some kind of jammer in the area. I have been a total victim for well over two years. And I said over and over, I did not want anyone to get hurt. 
This is not the first. The first time I went and stole some stuff from the store just to see if there was still law and order. Okay, now I know some of you will say, whoa, wait a minute. This guy's obviously dealing with a mental health crisis. I don't buy it. I think this is the genesis of his defense. I think he wants people to buy that this was all about a mental health crisis. And that he did not know the difference between right and wrong. But his previous encounters with law enforcement suggest that he is well aware of right and wrong. He is well aware of cause and effect. There's more. The judge then explained to Allen, this was just the bond hearing and that they were only dealing with matters about the bond. Allen continued to rant. Allen was eventually denied bond, remains in Florence County Detention Center. He is set to appear again in court in July and in September. Okay, um, multiple run-ins with law enforcement. Police were well aware of his dangerous nature. If you believe that he had a mental health condition, okay, that's what you believe. I'm not buying it right now. Why did he have a gun? Why did he have a gun? Why did he have access to a weapon? Once again, the culture of this country. I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism and white supremacy. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. And we begin our show tonight in Wicomico County, where a viral video sparked outrage and concern. The video shows a Parkside student holding up a pellet gun, shouting a violent racial statement. 47 ABC's Anissa Lopez joins us now live in studio. After speaking with the sheriff's office today about this incident, Anissa, this caught eyes across the area. So what was the sheriff's reaction? Jordan, Wicomico County Sheriff Mike Lewis tells me when he first heard what was being said in the video, he couldn't believe it. He says it's just wrong that a student would think it's okay to be making such racial remarks. Sheriff Lewis says he wants to assure the public they are taking this whole incident seriously and they are dealing with it. Over 400 shares on Facebook and several comments later. This video you're seeing stirred up conversation Tuesday evening. In the video, a Parkside High School student who is also the son of Tanya Laird Lewis, a Wicomico County Board of Education member, holds up a pellet gun while saying the words, quote, shoot N-word for fun. You hear me? I, I found it repulsive in this day and time. Uh, that a student would say what he said in that video clip. For God's sakes, this is 2022, man. Are you kidding me to have that type of racist language uh, spewing from the mouth of a 15-year-old? 
Sheriff Mike Lewis says when he first saw the video, he couldn't believe what he was hearing. This is unacceptable. And thank God we had someone who contacted us. His department took it as an immediate threat, sending deputies to the student's house Tuesday night where they conducted a threat assessment with both the family and the home. This was done in person. We wanted to, to yank this kid's chain. We wanted to see what he thought he was up to. Did he think it was appropriate? Did he have any remorse for what he did? Uh, he was very remorseful. While speaking with the 15-year-old, police learned the video was created about five months ago. And recently, it was airdropped inside of his school. I know very well how airdrop works. And you can walk through any public school here in Wicomico County. And if your airdrop is set to everyone, as opposed to your contacts, I can tell you, you will pick up dozens of images walking through any school in this county. That is a fact. Sheriff Lewis tells me they deem this to be an isolated incident and the child's family was unaware of what had taken place. I reached out to Tanya Laird Lewis to ask about her son's video. In a statement, she says, at this time, we are going to decline an interview. We are focusing on our son in his poor choices, working with the Wicomico County Public School System and the Sheriff's Office, end quote. Sheriff Lewis tells me they are working with the local state's attorney's office to see what charges, if any, would be applicable. He says he does believe residents of the county and students are in safe hands and that his school resource deputies are aware of the situation. Live in studio, Anissa Lopez, 47 ABC, WMDT. Jordan, back to you. Anissa, thank you. Last night, the Parkside High School principal sent a message to parents and staff saying, quote, the video shared via social media with our community does not in any way reflect the feelings or teachings at Parkside High School. This matter will be handled in accordance with the code of conduct, and we will work cooperatively with law enforcement as needed to fully investigate this matter. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches. Not random, but as a means of control a way to terrorize and oppress. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. God has different ideas. Seven years ago today, a white supremacist opened fire during a Bible study group at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Nine black parishioners were murdered. 
One of the victims was the Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor. WFAE's Sarah D'Elia spoke to Grayson Doctor, her daughter, and a former WFAE colleague about her reflections on this year's anniversary. The country continues to experience mass shootings seven years later. This time of year usually sneaks up on 29-year-old Grayson Doctor. She always remembers her mother, the Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, one of the Charleston Nine who lost their lives seven years ago today. But this time of year is a moment of reflection, of pause. It's a moment to gather with family and remember. But this year, she felt it coming on well before, in part because of the constant news of mass shootings throughout the country. I think it came to my mind a little bit more earlier, like when stuff started happening in other places. It was very triggering. Like it was just almost like I was in a way reliving it. And so the anniversary approaching has been on my mind for a little while. And I think it's just stirred up a lot of emotions. And when we talk about other events going on in the world, I imagine the shooting in Buffalo, um, the Uvalde shooting. What happens for you when you hear about another shooting um, that's impacted so many people in a community? I like that you asked that question because it really is like whenever a mass shooting happens that we hear about, like it's not just necessarily the, the last two that we've heard about, but every time I hear about a shooting that happens, it makes me so sad, like in a way that is completely different because I think I begin to think about like the family and, you know, like the after effects and like how much the grief and the loss like affects your life that people don't talk about. Every time I hear about a shooting that happens, my mind goes there and I just get so heartbroken thinking about like, oh my gosh, how these people's lives have now been changed and uprooted, you know, just ruined. And it's like, I'd never wish for that to happen to anybody else. And so when it does, it's just, it's jarring being in the media, you being in the media, you covering things and then having a story that's been covered. I mean, the media can be really insensitive at times of parachuting into communities, especially when there's been a tragedy and giving like a spotlight. And then, you know, that spotlight it doesn't last very long because they're on to the next shooting or the next tragedy can you offer any reflections on what that is like? It's been a very interesting thing um, to see it from both sides, you know, and especially working in like local news versus national news. You know, I am thankful like for my station, like for even us talking about this, because we are keeping the story alive. And that's been one of the things that's, I think, been the most difficult to deal with. There's Charleston church shooting is one shooting that I mean people you know I'm not gonna say they, they totally forgot I don't think people forgot about it at all but I don't think we remember about it as often as we should you know and especially considering the historical context around it and I even thought about this with the Buffalo shooting because the Uvalde shooting happened so quickly right afterwards that it was almost like we forgot, not forgot, but like in a way we just moved on so quickly, you know, to the next thing when, I mean, sometimes you can't help it. Like those happen back to back. I don't know. I think that is one of the most challenging things because you don't want your loved ones to be forgotten about. And in my mom's case, something that like happened to the black community, you know, like we were all affected by that and you don't want that to be forgotten. 
You know, I don't want that to be another like thing that goes down in black history that we never talk about or never teach about. What lessons did you hope would have been learned by this time, seven years later from the shooting? I don't want to sound cliche, but I really wish by now we would have had better gun control better rules and laws over who is able to have a gun and like how old and all of these things. Because for my mom's situation, it was, you know, like him not getting cleared in three days, you know, and like, that's what caused him to be able to get a gun because then it was like, oh, well, you didn't get cleared. Let's go ahead. And, you know, and it like, it's the things like that, not even the things that we necessarily think about when we think about your typical gun laws. And so I just wish by now people would take it more seriously and I don't understand how you can't see that we have a problem. It's happening in so many different communities at this point. It's not even just any one specific community. It's happening to everyone. Like at this point, everyone is affected by it. And and the thing is too, Sarah, it's like I'm already, like I'm not even quite over the anger of, you know, what happened to my mom. And so it's, yeah, it's very triggering. It makes me very angry over and over again. And just thinking about like how things could have been prevented that makes you also feel like I can't even really put it into words because like, I think maybe disbelief, just the fact that it's just like, what is it really going to take for something to like change and like stop this from happening? Like what, what really is it going to take? Are there any rituals or any annual traditions you found yourself doing over the past seven years to remember your mom? I'm all about spirituality and stuff. So I like to set up like a little altar for my mom that just includes like her pictures and I have this sleep shirt that she got me. It was literally the last thing she bought me. And I remember because I like begged her for it. (laughs) So it's this Ralph Lauren sleep shirt that is so hot. You can't even really sleep in it. And so it was like, she was like, are you serious? I was like, yeah, mom, I really want to have it. And so she bought it for me. And it was the last thing she gave me. I don't know. I just, I don't ever wear it. I don't even, I just kind of fold it up and I take it out whenever I'm like setting up my altar for her. And then I have a couple other things that were like hers. I have like this little pocket Bible that she used to have. And well, it's more like a purse Bible because it's a little bigger. It cannot fit in your pocket. But she carried that Bible everywhere. It was like red, but now it's all like faded and... <laughs> It's just, it is in such a bad condition, but I treasure it. For people that are hearing you talk about, you know, your story, maybe for the first time, maybe they've heard you talk about it before, but like, what do you want the general public to know and understand about being, you know, the surviving member of somebody, of a family member who, who passed away in in this very violent way in a mass shooting? Well, (laughs) I feel like this is going to sound really crazy, but one, we are real people. This is real life. This is not a conspiracy. Like you may not hear from us on a regular basis or see our faces or even know like who we are, but this really happened to us and it affects us on a daily basis in so many unimaginable ways. You know, it's like losing my mom. I mean, I always imagined losing her would be really difficult, but I'm finding it affecting me in ways that I never expected, you know? And so it is hurtful sometimes when people don't necessarily believe that something happened, you know? And you're like, I literally lived through this and I know what it's like trying to come back from it. Just have grace for people because you just don't know what anyone's going through. But some of us are really carrying a lot, you know? We're carrying a lot of stuff that 
we don't talk about a lot and it's hard. It really is. But, you know, we're making it through. We're all finding our own ways to honor our loved ones and to just like continue living. And so, you know, I don't know. I don't know how I would end that sentence, but that's that's what I would say. That was WFAE's Sarah D'Elia speaking to Grayson Doctor, a former WFAE reporter. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 18, 2022. So I have been told today this is our compensatory call in dial in if you have any thoughts observations counter racist suggestions to offer non-white people victims of racism help us get this problem solved immediately uh, the number to dial 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Man, oh man. Uh, Let's see. So many things to share Uh, before we get started. Actually, it was the report that we heard at the very end there. Um, Make sure I can pull up so I can get the title about the it's been seven. I think I mentioned that yesterday that it's been seven years since the Charleston, South Carolina massacre. Uh, even though it doesn't, you know, I don't know, I guess it depends on your perspective. I'm sure for the victims, uh, it does not seem like it has been, you know, just yesterday or what have you. I'm sure as she heard, uh, as you heard, they think about this every day. Uh, let's see. Okay. That was, there's a reason I did not get this from NPR sourcing is important. I got this from North Carolina public. Uh, radio, and they even have two different North Carolina public radios. So I think I got this from WUNC uh, specifically. Let's see, is that true? Maybe it's not. Give me a moment and I'll figure out exactly which North Carolina public radio I got that uh, final report from. But I think it is so important uh, what we just heard in terms of people forgetting Buffalo like Uvalde happened right afterwards and I think that's super important we talked about that but I think several folks uh, were saying like wow it seems like you know we're not even thinking about Buffalo at all at this point like that's not you know a memory or important at all Uh, people just totally move forward which is why the book club mandatory uh, for cows listeners again I don't even say that uh, like ever really (laughs) I don't remember uh, a time where I've said you know yeah we gotta read uh, and talk about uh, the book club and whatever it is like I said whether it's Minister Malcolm's uh, autobiography or whatever the case may be it's whatever you know 
people don't really enjoy reading that much, but for this one, it is mandatory. Uh, and in fact, I am a little bit disgruntled that uh, I couldn't pull that up immediately because I think that's so uh, important. But yeah, I didn't get that from NPR. So before within the next, mm, I'll probably be talking as soon as we get a listener on. I will make sure that I get this immediately so that I can give uh, the names of the victims uh, and uh, the point that we just uh, heard, because I think that's so important. How That is exactly why the book club is mandatory, because people don't even remember. Oh, dang. There was a white man who was killing black people in Buffalo, New York, Buffalo and New York at law. People don't even remember that that happened. And it's not like, again, that's not ancient history. This is not, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. uh, days or what have you that this happened. Uh, One of the books, or in fact, make sure I do it in proper order. So let's see. All right. There was so much detail. I've done so much research uh, around the Buffalo killings from 1980 it is amazing that's why i said it's not even really an excuse that people didn't hear about this because it wasn't reported it's super well reported i've tried to share from different news reports as we go hopefully some of these reports will pique your curiosity if you're not already following along with us absolute madness thursdays 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific so this report buffalo becomes a city of fear suspicion i'm not even reading the whole thing i'm skipping down i read a part of it this is the report where they talked about how there were racist jokes being passed in buffalo that this killer was the son of sambo and that they were going to start a heart fund he cut out the hearts of several of the black male victims they were going to create a heart fund to get this white killer a more powerful weapon Before you get to that juicy part of the report, it reads Mayor James Griffin, who was elected on the conservative party line in a tough law and order campaign three years ago, is concerned that national press accounts of the murders will give the city a rap it doesn't deserve. He emphasizes that only two of the murders occurred within the city's limits, the others in the outlying suburbs. There's a heck of a lot more murders taking place in Atlanta, Georgia than in the city of Buffalo, he told a reporter like whoa this is November 5 1980 literally days before uh, the US presidential election Reagan won but this is in the middle of the so called Atlanta child murders I think they were at least 12 probably more than that uh, black children on the official list more than that unofficially at this point wow and the Bowen Holmes explosion had just happened on Columbus Day about three weeks before, which is totally unrelated. That's five separate fatalities, four of them children. It continues. He said he believes the black community, so-called, has been stirred up by its leaders to needless alarm recalling that there was no huge community outcry when a few years back a black man raped and killed four white women. The white community wasn't up in arms saying we ought to arm ourselves. He said, man, if you let Gusty get one week to play in the library, if I can find that case, I guarantee you, I will prove you are a liar. 
I guarantee you, if this happened, a black male was out raping white women, serially raping white women in 1980 Buffalo. Oh, yeah, I am absolutely positively certain you had a lot of white people. We, they were, that's number one. Moving forward, based on the report that we heard, man. I don't even like fiction like real talk after you all's performance with the man in the high castle. Uh, And then the books, the nonfiction books that we've read in the book club this year, including absolute madness, man, I'd said to myself repeatedly, we might never read a book of fiction again in the cow's book club. Uh, I don't even read fiction that often, but I am reading a work of fiction now written by a black male. It is rendered invisible. Now, people who know Gus T's book list and or the book club. Mm. Rendered invisible written by Dr. Frank E. Dobson, Jr. Buffalo native, as they say. So based on the report that we heard at the very end, South Carolina, Charleston, we don't we already forgot Buffalo. We're not talking about it. We certainly forgot nineteen eighty Buffalo, twenty two caliber killer, but Buffalo last month, did we forget that already? Peyton Gentry hadn't even been convicted yet. Haven't even had the trial yet. <laughs> so to that, I wasn't even gonna read this part of the book, but this is the fiction that I am reading right now. Chapter two, page nineteen, Barbershop Talk. Hey, Eddie, man, Kwame asked, why are you taking notes writing all of this down now? Nobody cares, you know. Nobody really cared about the deaths of black men back in 1980. And nobody cares now. I care. Yeah, but they really don't. Maybe because it was brothers or Buffalo, but nobody cared. And nobody is going to read what you write if you write about this man because they don't care about the deaths of black men, my brother. Now, if it was somebody white, a little white girl or white women for real, they at the top of the list and then white men and boys next. Maybe black women be next or other people of color, but black men nah society don't care they care more about cats and dogs than they do brothers i dare you dr researcher research that here we talking about 13 dead black men that we know about and nobody knows it happened true how the hell that happened man 13 black men men of color murdered and this killer not be infamous they ain't made no tv movie about this here this dude's the dudes that he killed it's like their lives meant nothing and now here you are trying to write about it something nobody cares about a serial killer of brothers in cold ass buffalo new york yeah i said but shouldn't we care worthless negroes from virginia Uh, So that is chapter two. I wasn't even going to read that part. The part that I was going to read is later in the book. So this is like a collection of short stories that are based around 
the 22 caliber killings that we are reading about. So it does include factual information about this case, the names of the victims, the dates, some Glenn uh, Dunn, a 14 year old black male who was killed at the East Tops in Buffalo, 1980. It includes that and uh, includes that they terrorized uh, the funeral. Uh, The race soldiers came by and had bullet holes painted on them and were shouting KKK and all the rest of it at the early morning. It includes that detail as well. So at this part, you've got a black male. Uh, His care mate and daughter are gone. Thinks she's left him. No count black male. He doesn't know where she is. He thinks she's left him. Uh, And so his wife, care mate, uh, her former instructor, white man, he sees this black male walking and decides that he's going to pick him up and give him a ride. His name is Johnny, the black male that we're hearing from. So I'm picking up kind of in the middle of this. uh, And this white man, Bill Riley, has picked up Johnny to give him a ride to work ostensibly. Uh, And so the black male, black male, Johnny, uh, his care mate, her name uh, is Delaney. So the white man asks, uh, so how's Delaney doing? My colleagues and I always encouraged her to get her bachelor's and maybe more. She was that perceptive and insightful. I couldn't tell him that she was gone, but I wanted him to continue because his words might give me a clue. I couldn't tell him how we fought over her schooling, how I'd said, I don't want you to get ahead of me, Laney. I'm afraid that when you get your degrees and all, you won't want me. Maybe she was leaving me for a college guy or to finally finish that degree. After Denise had been born, she'd had to stop school because who was going to care for our daughter? And sometimes we needed Laney to work too. Temp stuff, since she had accounting and typing skills, plus it was easier for her to get and keep a good job than me. Laney's fine, I said, fine. She still reads a lot. Well, that's one fine lady you have. And your little girl, she must be getting big now. He was driving north on Ferry Street like he was going to take me all the way to work, but I wasn't sure I wanted to go. Yeah, Nisi is five now. Just started kindergarten. I remembered how after Denise had been born, he'd come to the christening at Deliverance Church. Everybody had made a big fuss over him and his date, whoever she was. White people, a college teacher showing up at the event for a black baby dedication. They'd given us a gift for our baby and afterward he'd held Denise in his arms. I'd wondered then if she was the first black baby he'd ever touched or held. Probably. Right now, I can't stand white people hate y'all I said staring at him his face turned beet red as he focused on the road metaphor John I'll tell you something he continued focusing on the road I wasn't sure if he was scared of me or just intent on driving I wanted to scare his ass right now I can't stand them either white people So you want me to drive you all the way to work or drop you off somewhere? I want to kill the white cat who is killing us. I got a gun. 
I said. His face turned white, then red, then white again. Guessed he thought he was trying to do a good deed, and now he was in the car with a crazy-ass nigga. Hell, I just wanted him to feel what I was feeling, what we were feeling. His hands trembled at the wheel. I was glad. I wanted to make this man shake with fear in his own car. But he spoke even louder above the music on the car stereo. I don't blame you, John, he said. I want him dead too, and I'm a pacifist. Anyhow, whoever he is, he needs to be put away for a long time. These killings are making me rethink my stand on the death penalty. I know you might not believe this, but a lot of whites are sick over these killings too. My college department held a meeting recently during which we discussed what we could do, what kind of statement we could make in light of this spree. As I looked at this white man, I realized that for the first time in my life, I wanted somebody dead, the killer, or maybe I just wanted somebody white dead. Help me find him, Bill. I looked at the road in front of us. I gripped my lunch pail tighter to my chest. Help me find them. John, your guess is as good as mine and who knows where he'll strike next. Now Earth, Wind and Fire was playing on the stereo. Laney loves this tune, I said, Shining Star. Yes, I know, he said. He said it like he knew my wife like they were more than just teacher and student I wanted to punch him you know and I'll stop there cowbells and everything and this is a really short book I don't even like fiction but I and the black author Dr. Frank E. Dobson Jr. in addition to being born in Buffalo he mailed me a signed copy of the book I don't even like talking to non-white people as stated earlier this week but enjoy talking to non-white people but I mailed him just he's born in Buffalo victim of white supremacy I think he might have even been living in Buffalo when the 1980 killings were happening uh, and so, uh, I just wrote to him to say man I cannot believe uh, that this where I can't say I can't believe but I mean it is disgraceful and an act of racism that they have not mentioned the 1980 killings of East Buffalo the Topps grocery store and so you're, you're correct I've had a few people contact me but not very many and absolutely they should be talking about this and da 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 we talked about the Buffalo anyway Dr. Dobson actually should be coming on the cows later this month, even though we have a strict no or excuse me, white guests only policy. But I felt kind of bad after he said, because I, I don't even think I asked him for the book. I think he volunteered uh, just, you know, send me a book after I was uh, talking to him, because I certainly did not invite when I wrote. I just, you know, contacted him because like me, because I read that paragraph, the first one I read, because uh, I felt like that repeatedly, like, why are you collecting all these reports? Like, nobody cares about this book. Nobody cares about these black guys being killed. 
Nobody cared about it then. Nobody cares now. I had the exact same thought process. <laughs> Anywho, uh, so that is rendered invisible. The last bit of reading. And then we will get to the folks who dialed in. So I went to the library. That's how the first time or one of the first times, that's how I found out about Dr. Dobson's book. And then he mailed it to me. But they did not, interestingly, have Dr. Dobson's book at the University of Washington Library. Anyway, but they did have lots of other great things on this subject matter. So I'm there on Friday uh, to get several reports. And for the people that are with us reading the book club, the author, white woman, Catherine Pelinero, you know, it's a white woman writing this book at many points. One, she mentions very briefly the 1967 Buffalo riot. And she talks about angry, youthful Negroes and pelting police with rocks and that sort of thing. But it's really quick. It's not a lot of detail. And it, I thought this is a moment where a white author could be deliberately practicing white supremacy, racism. And many folks have said that as we have been reading. Gus T. went to the library and said, I'm going to research the 67 Buffalo riot. Now, they have a whole documentary about this riot with a lot of great archival footage. I've played portions of it on the program already. Uh, it's online. I've linked it. I'll link it again if you want to watch it. It's on YouTube. It's lengthy. It's about an hour and a half. Uh, but this was a significant event. I think this is one of the riots among many from 1967. And I believe it's included in the Kerner report. I could be wrong about that. I will have to verify. All of that said, they have an entire book written about the 1967 riot in Buffalo. It's called Anatomy of a Riot, Buffalo 67, written by a white man who just died last year. I went to get his contact information. I was going to see if we could get him as a guest on the program, but didn't make it in time. Uh, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is why this is the, the type of thing why I say go to the college university library even the community college library if Dr. Welsing if we value what she said reading is more important than watching television you can go and get information about all kinds of things University of Washington we're on the opposite side of the continent from Buffalo the University of Washington library they have an entire section on Buffalo New York I was stunned because I've never had an interest in Buffalo, New York. So I would have never even thought, wow, they have a whole section. I mean, they have like books on the history of Buffalo and racism, almost with that title exactly in their section on Buffalo, New York. Reading is astronomically more important than watching television. So what did old, you know, Gus T, what did he find? Or I'll give you just a little snippet. This is in the book, Anatomy of a Riot. And this is what I said, like books like this that they probably will not have at a public library because this is an older book, um, out of print, that type of thing. But college libraries would have something like this. I just scanned the entire book uh, super quick, take the whole thing, super high quality, all the images and all uh, everything else. And you can have it forever and ever. Flash drive, very easy most major institutions have technology that makes it very easy. You could just scan the whole book uh, and you don't even have to worry about uh, checking it out. So took the whole book. This is page 197. That way I can read the whole thing 
by the time we finish, I'll be very informed about the history of white supremacy racism in Buffalo, even having not been there. But my compensatory investment requests will continue. So hopefully I'll be able to go and do lots of research and be very well informed about the history of Negro mistreatment in West New York, clan and all. So this is on page 197. Now, again, she basically just gave us one paragraph about angry, uh, angry Negro youths hurling rocks. Page 197, interview number 131, 52-year-old Caucasian Boilermaker. I think the government should take troops and put them all around these rioting areas and give them machine guns and let them kill everybody. Now, that alone would have been worthy of conclusion, but I'm going to read more. The last two who are alive, one will shoot the other, and the one who walks out alive, the government should shoot him, and they are all gone. The best thing that should be done is the U.S. government, the city fathers, and state fathers would stop welfare for the niggers. That would stop the niggers. They would get on the boat and go back to Africa. Question, then you feel that the riots have hurt the Negro cause? Answer, I've been in construction all my life. One thing I have always loved is a woman. I have worked with cowbell. My my goodness. Uh, One thing I have always loved is a woman. I have worked with niggers all my life and never found fault with them. What kind of transit? Woo, cowbell. That's all I can say. Work with niggers all my life and never found fault with them. No how until they started this riot. Truthfully, would you do that to your own home? They are doing that to their own homes and they are doing that to their own children. I worked with niggers all my life. I drank out of the same coffee cup that they drank out of delectable Negro. I've ate off the same spoons that they have double down. I have never hated them. But there is some goddamn fool, some communist that has come in here and got them to do it. Now you take any nigger and ask anybody. You may know a little more than I do about it. Ask if any of these niggers that's been arrested, that's been in these riots, were they born in the north? Not a damn one of them. They are all southern niggers that come up here and don't know what to do with the freedom that they get when they come up here. I have worked with niggers all my life and I'm crazy about n- <laughs> I can't live. I can't live. Woo! How did this not get in the- I mean, you went to I'm talking Catherine Pellinero, the person who wrote the book or reading the book. You went to Buffalo. You got all this groovy research. I cannot imagine a world. I mean, this is what I found. Just moron Gus going to the University of Washington library for like mm, a few hours yesterday. You get to go to Buffalo for like weeks, maybe even a month. Go to the University of Buffalo. They probably got like a whole library of Buffalo. They books of this type of content. How do you not include something like this? The whole Buffalo riot just militant Negroes throwing rocks and then moving on. Let me finish what he says here. Uh, I'm crazy about Negroes. Me too. A man could stand a day on the job. A man 
couldn't stand a day on the job without them because they are the craziest damn fools and make the day go by. <laughs> I can't live. Don't be the entertainment committee for white people at work. Uh, but we haven't got a northern nigger that would pick up a gun that would do harm to anybody in the north. I'll go to their lunch and steal a sandwich. They'll come to my lunch and steal a sandwich. There's delectable nigger. There isn't a nigger in the north, a northern born nigger that would cause this trouble and that's the honest to God truth do you think that their cries of police brutality are overdone question answer oh very much so I go down to the corner and get drunk I know all the cops down there when I'm falling down on the street I say to a cop drive me home he says to me where are the keys to your car he says all right walk home I don't care how you get there I got the keys to your car. You aren't going to kill nobody. It is the same way in the colored neighborhood. The police won't let you drive a car. The police never pick on you. Have to pick on. If I came up and tried to get at you, you most naturally are going to fight me off. It's the same damn thing with a cop. You walk past the cop on the street. You are drunk. You are stumbling all over the place. If I come to you and give you some trouble, you are going to fight me off. These people are giving the police trouble. Why the hell shouldn't the cops try to fight them off? Do you feel that Mayor Sedita handled the riots the way he should have? Question. Answer. Yes, he did. He handled them the best way he should have and the only thing I say he should have done, he should have gone in there and shot a whole lot more of them to put these southern people back where they belong. Like I said before, I worked hand in hand with northern niggers all my life and I never had trouble with them. We have a few of them here from the south. We put them into construction. I have been in construction 35 years. My father has been in construction for 60 years. The two of us are in the same job today. We have one colored man on the job. You know what he says. What do these goddamn niggers expect to get out of this? They do nothing but ruining our life. He said them goddamn fool niggers don't know what they are doing. That was a colored man talking just like that. He don't know what they are trying to do to them. Why don't they just come out, pick a committee, go before the city fathers and ask what can be done for them? We'd like to help them. We'd like to put them on construction. And then he goes on to complain about the NAACP and I could. Wow. Reading is way more important than watching television. Now, really, I was saying, you know, this should have been in the book that we're reading right now, and it should have. This should have been talked about with Buffalo. Unless I missed this, too, because I, I did see one report this week written by Black Male where they mentioned Joseph Christopher in Buffalo, but it did it. <laughs> It was not nearly enough detail. But I did see one this week. But again, now, if Gus T can find this, the book Anatomy of a Riot, Buffalo 67. And it's not even a very long book. And it's interviews. So, I mean, a lot of it, it reads like that. It's just people, you know, and they don't say N word. It's not all that. Just write what they said. Now we can have understanding about what is happening why why now I have a much better understand why the negras are stuck in such a pitiful position 
in East Jefferson way before we got to Peyton Gendron. Got it. Even way before we got to Joseph G. Christopher in 1980. Got it. Go to your university and college library. Like I said, even if it's not directly in your city, when you go, you should have a list of things that you're going to research while you're there. You can hang out an hour, two hours, even if it's 30 minutes, I'm going to maximize and get as much material as I can in this 30 minutes. Family research projects. I said retired firefighter, Irie, and you all are in cities that have major uh, institutions. Uh, take, if you have children, I wouldn't care if it's one or 100. If you have access to children, Dr. Cambon said he did this with his offspring as well take them to the library that should be a place where they are very comfortable the university college library they know how to research if they need to find out anything oh that wacky negra anatomy of oh yeah that's you know easy no problem quick easy that's the way that you want your offspring that they have a zest for knowledge learning constructive information not just sitting around and YouTube and Netflix that is the totality of what I know about research and information can't find it on YouTube must not exist reading is astronomically more important than watching television often because when they do documentaries now that Buffalo 67 uprising is done by black people it doesn't include this report either. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. No metaphors for the broadcast. Wow, we heard, I mean... There were lots of metaphors included. There normally are. They talked uh, the session about the doulas that uh, now that we have disparities and all that embedded in the medical system. What? They didn't say J. Marion Sims and all the rest of it, but embedded uh, in the medical system. Uh, it was quite a few. Again, as I've stated, these metaphors and analogies and comparisons false comparisons generally uh, these are ways that white people practice deception master deceivers that's one of the primary ways really that they practice white supremacy racism victims of white supremacy we non-white people we are still learning frequently we do not have logic so we can't be precise exact specific with what we want to articulate. So we employ lots of metaphors, analogies, rhetoric. This brought all of the cows programs now, but this one, hey, we've been practicing for a long time. So no metaphors. If you need to take time to configure, select your words, that is always allowed and applauded really I do that myself that is a huge component in my view of the science of counter racism being precise accurate 
deliberate with our word choice. Much obliged. Uh, let's see. Uh, if folks, they did uh, approve. I keep saying COVID-19 is kind of there. Like, <laughs> like lots of, you know, other things are happening and people are talking about other things. But wow, uh, they did uh, say that they've approved COVID-19 for very young children. I think it's under five. I do not have children. Uh, man, I don't. Uh, I get parents out there. If you have younger children, I know we have moms out there and such with children that are very young. Uh, I don't know. How do you have you researched? Do you have thoughts about that? If you have offspring, have you vaccinated? Did you do your research and conclude that you think that's the best thing to do? If you have young children to go ahead and get them vaccinated or are you going to wait and see? Um, Yeah, I would be very interested. I think that is important and definitely worthy of, you know, sharing a word or two. Uh, Incidentally, really quick before there are many things that I say about the audio clips, but just Buffalo is super important. And then I will get the victims from South Carolina, but I did want to say really quick, the report that we heard from uh, Pastor Rob McElmore, victim in Newburgh, where he was in the car with his offspring and the white race soldier, William J. Ryan, comes up with the box setter, and, I'll cut you, I'll cut you, nigger, nigger, all this, and he said he's this. I guess he's in his vehicle, and this starts off and he said he drives over to the parking lot and begins recording, he said, you know I didn't believe it myself, and you know, nobody would believe it, I didn't record all of this Certainly, VGQ. I have no idea being there in that sort of situation and your offspring is there, your life is in danger, his life is in danger, all the rest of it. I've said for uh, some years now, and really this, I think there was a, an incident in Chicago where I started to reconsider and give a different perspective on this. There was a, a situation in Chicago, this was close to 10 years ago, during the summertime, they had some sort of festival every summer. And it was a white woman intoxicated. She was being same thing, terroristic. It was a black couple. She was being terroristic and rude. The black male started recording and she said, I don't care if you're recording Negra. And she went up, spit on him, called him Negra several times. I think she might've even assaulted him. This is after he recorded all this is on uh, video. And and I've seen so many cases since then. Recording frequently does not stop acts of white supremacy racism uh, and sometimes it may even escalate uh, with the white like I'll give you something to record Negra uh, my recommendation would be as I've said consistently this person comes up with a box cutter how do you know this person doesn't have a firearm you pull out your camera whatever you're recording and they you know I can't stab you bam you know or even what they have a baseball bat and they break the window. You know, anything could just the, the car could stall. That could be the moment. You know, anything could happen. I'm all about distance. Same thing that I've been saying. If I'm not ready to have a confrontation with this person, I'm going to get out of here. Call the enforcement officers. This is not I'm in mortal debt. My child is in mortal danger vacate the area call if I'm a whip out that phone call the enforcement officers maybe if your child I think if they said his child's a teenager so if he's 16 17 something like that maybe they can get the license number or what have you uh, while you know you are are trying to get away get someplace safe public go to a shopping mall uh, and you're just calling security that's all you're doing call security this is where we are this is what give them a, an accurate description shirt all that vehicle and everything and that's it that would be, you know, 
VG, victims guaranteed qualified uh, but just I've seen way too many situations where uh, you start recording and that does absolutely nothing to stop or de-escalate a terrorist white terrorist attack and if anything sometimes it escalates their aggression so that's I think something to be very mindful of and again not having children at all myself my default I think for counter racist codification uh, and even times I've been before where I've been what they call babysitting tending to a child that was not mine that was my default then in terms of behavior if something happens and it's an act of racism white supremacy I'm gonna get that child to safety and then we can do whatever because these things can escalate so quickly and you never know the person already has displayed one weapon you don't know if they have other weapons you don't know if they have other people just there's so many variables like that you didn't plan this encounter I want to get my child to safety we heard about an eight-year-old child being uh, shot and killed there's so many times where children uh, are killed threatened harmed in the system of white supremacy we don't want anybody threatened or harmed but I mean certainly uh, children get the children out of harm's way I feel like that's just uh, at least my basic code and that's what I suggest to other people because we just don't know and I, I did appreciate hearing Pastor uh, Macklemore saying after this incident that he was going to renew carrying his firearm in a codified safe manner but right on dangerous times the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, let us see uh, again attempted parents let us know how you uh, are processing the new information about COVID-19 uh, especially if you have younger uh, younger children are you doing the vaccine with them yes no or even if you're being compelled because I guess school situation you might you know they might be forcing you to do or else you know uh, let's see Bay Area mom should be with us uh, let's see I'll nab other folks as I see hands Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, thank you for taking my call. Greetings to you and everyone participating in the program. Uh, let's see. I, I have I have a child that's in school, um, but he's in college, so we only have one more year. Oh, so, <laughs> oh dear. Oh, I, I'm so. I don't know. I know before he makes moves, especially major moves, he calls me and lets me know if he gets confused, he, he'll let me know. Um, oh, dear. They are, uh, there are a lot of little uh, new changes for him coming um, this fall in, in school. Um, it is required um, for them to be uh vaccinated um if they are going on campus um i i'm just i know it's going to get tricky uh once he gets out of college but i'm just pushing for these next these this the rest of this year because it's going to get trickier and maybe if he gets enough classes i mean does everything in person right now if they 
start changing the mandate, he can do some stuff online until he knocks the rest out um, by May. That that that's that's the most I can say. Um, it 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 makes me nervous. Um, as far as me with the children, because I work at schools. Um, I don't know. I can see because I'm in um, uh, predominantly well, a, a majority white uh, district. They protest. This is another reason why they had that. Uh, they were had to remove. They were allowed to remove the masks from the children because they were making these statements that you're, you know, you're muzzling our children and they can't breathe and all that stuff, suppressing their oxygen. Um, so they did release the uh, mask law, so you wear it if you want. Um, come August. I think a lot of children will be uh, at home, um, particularly the white ones, and I think uh, they'll fight it. And um, there's going to be a lot more um, colds. So, so that is that really uh, uh, this COVID stuff and the children in school? It's, it's it really makes me nervous because I I, I have one in school. Um, and then just some of the clips. Uh, I did see your um, you made a post uh, recently about it being the seven year anniversary of the uh, the the church murders. Um, and uh, sometimes I think we 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 we, we did kind of. I guess I don't know if we're desensitized. I don't know if it's just so many so many issues that we we. We encounter being um, classified as black. If it, it, it's just expected, um, and I think when I think of the seven years, and I think about the clip that you played with the guy that was forgiving the other um, white guy, he just you know I forgive you because I'm um, I think he said he was spiritual or religious or something like that. And and it just makes me wonder. And I'm not knocking religion, but did the, is it because we're spiritual, quote unquote? Are they using religion to kind of keep us in order or keep us in line? Because as I listened to Dr. Wilson's clip thereafter, we are oh we're overly forgiving because it just seems like it's embedded in us to. Telling the others, don't worry about this. Forget only with the oppressor. We're not that forgiving with each other. Uh, and I'm not trying to pick on other black people. We're weird. We do not. <laughs> we do not forgive each other the way we do people that aren't um, um, white. And um, the 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 New York shootings. I think we kind of did. I guess I don't know what else is going on in the world that um, makes us not think back to these uh, wild shootings. But I do know that because of the the Buffalo, the the when when he, they went in the kids, uh, the the school. I no, it wasn't New York. It was in Texas. Because of the Texas shooting, 
we start locking our doors at the school. So you can't get in unless you have a key and that's in the main entrance. And that's, I think all the schools in that, the district that I'm in, the doors are locked now because of that incident in Texas. Um, I was thinking too with the, uh, so you, you, you went back a bit to the, um, the, the Buffalo, uh, or the New York, um, shootings, um, in the uh, late 80s, uh, late 1980, 1981. And, uh, um, it was kind of like a, uh, protest against, um, well, hey, it wasn't that many shooters here, and Buffalo was only two, and Atlanta had more child murders than we did, you know, as far as uh, Atlanta had more issues than we did, our two little murders here, and um, we had white women attacked, and we're not going out trying to um, bear arms, but black people are. So I was wondering if we start looking like or acting as if we're going to protect ourselves, is that when they um, get concerned and decide that they need to do something to make sure we don't defend ourselves, like bring out, maybe have a concert or bring someone out to speak to keep us, you know, uh, quietly uh, protesting, that kind of thing. Um I, I just don't know. And then with the Ku Klux Klan, sometimes I wonder if Ku Klux Klan is a code for for just racist white people because it kind of takes it away. If I just blame random murders on Ku Klux Klan, then it's just like, no, it's not white people. It's Ku Klux Klan. Oh, no, it's Ku Klux Klan. It's only like maybe 30 or 40 of those, but that's who's doing it versus just random white people that that are doing um, a lot of assaults and murders and terrorizing black people. And I just think they use Ku Klux Klan as a cold word to make it seem like, oh, no, it's not white people. It's just only those uh, guys in those costumes. And um, I remember, too, in the book club um, that we're on right now, um, one of the – they were stating that if you're a serial killer – you don't qualify for Social Security benefits. So in the 80s or the early 80s, when they uh, announced that, I think it was a warning to white people, hey, okay, we know it's one of us, so don't get caught because you'll lose, you won't be able to qualify for Social Security or you won't get your benefits. So I don't know. I just... I just overthink. So I'm going to read my line and let um, let other people share. But I was thinking Juneteenth, too. I, I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to Juneteenth, but right now I, I don't have to go to work on Monday because of Juneteenth. They, they gave us this as a holiday, a national holiday, during that uh, pandemic, I believe, to – pacify us because they know we like to party um or maybe just release tension with sound because you played a clip and uh newly fuller in the beginning and he said uh 
well, what can they do? And it's like, we can dance. <laughs> whoop de do. So, whoop de do, right? That's you could dance. Who cares? When I was at that event last night, this white lady was telling me, "Yeah, I came here for the dance competition. There's a dance competition. And they were playing the most discouraging gutter snipe music. It was the most awful, the awfulest lyrics on the planet. And um, little children are dancing to this music, and she's just smiling, being entertained like they do when they want to come, you know, get their uh, entertainment off of us and then go back home. We were in West Oakland. And that's what the city, they were granted millions of dollars. And this is what white people are doing with their money to stop the violence in Oakland, giving block parties in the projects with yucky food, horrific music, saints painting, and um, we'll be out by 10. Thank you for taking my call. I'll mute my line. I don't know what your problem is, man. Steph Curry and the Warriors won the championship. Like, we fitting a cut a fool. Like, even though they don't play in Oakland anymore, it's still a Bay Area. Like, man, we break out the E-40 and too short. Like, uh, man, we are fitting a cut a fool. And it's Juneteenth. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, we party until July 4th. Like, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm not surprised at any of it. The white woman coming. I just love the dancing. It's my favorite time of the year. Yes. Yes. Oakland's finest. Too short and E-40. Might have been in attendance. Who knows? Captain Savaho. That was one of the classics. Love that one. I want to be saved. Yes. Yes. Oakland, California. Um, Dr. Welsing talked about that. Now, Neely Fuller, she said he was talking about that at the beginning of We Can Dance, but Dr. Wellesley talked about that like, man, reading is way more important than being known as uh, top dancers all over the known universe. Uh, before we nab some of the other folks who dialed in, I just wanted to say quickly, they had the segment Exon or Erzona, I think that was how you say it. Clayton, Erzona Clayton. She worked with Dr. King in her 90s. Certainly, I do not have a critique like, hey, she should be telling us, how did you do that? Live to be 90. That is amazing. System of white supremacy. Gus might not even make it to half her age. All of that said, I said, uh, Miss Clayton, she's on NPR talking to these white journalists who talked about that for years. She's on NPR, Miss Clayton, and they say, uh, you were insulated from segregation. You didn't have to go through the really you know, difficult parts, of the dragons of prejudice. They said this metaphor. <laughs> How do you live in the black part of town but you are insulated, whatever that mean metaphor. <laughs> That's what I mean. There, we get this from the man and the woman. All this, and none of it makes any sense. Insulated from so-called. Se- How are you insulated? Whatever that means. 
you live in the black part of town. Now, maybe if they said something like, oh, we lived out in a real rural part, you know, of wherever, and it was like 20 people in the town, so we just didn't have any rules, and we didn't hear about any of this stuff, and there was no television when we grew up, so we didn't know about all this stuff, and we just, you know, we farmed, it was very rural, we never went anywhere. Then I said, okay, you were so-called insulated, but not... We grew up in the Negro part of town, but we were insulated. That makes whatever you mean by insulated, but that is total nonsense. We are not. It would be better as opposed to saying you were insulated, that you were confused, ignorant about white supremacy, racism. You live in the black part of town. You're right in the middle of it. You're looking at it every day. You're drowning, if you want to use a metaphor, in white supremacy racism because it's everything. Probably the contaminated water that you got. It's not even a metaphor. Words are very important. They will sit there and do all that. Oh, you're the expert. You know everything. Wrong. Even, let me see what else with that interview because I wrote quite a bit down. And then she looked at her record. She said, that's not too bad. The white reporter. Oh, yeah, that is a very fair record. White said, but that's words are very important. That is in the word guide. Uh, And I think they had a nut. True colors. That one was used as well. That's in the word guide as well. uh, Where Mr. Uh, Fuller in addition to recommending that we not use the word fair also recommends that we not use that phrase true colors that person showed their true colors normally when they did something incorrect like oh yep see see I think uh, Bay Area mom was just talking about the use of the religion of white supremacy to condition us we're just supposed to be terrorized and forgive and that biblical metaphor turn the other cheek and forgive and you know white Jesus will you know do us right after we die I guess Uh, we heard some of that from Miss Clayton as well where she says she and Dr. King minister said that uh, th- try to love everybody. There's some good in everybody. So we sp- we're supposed to try to find the good in Peyton Gendron. Find the good in Dylan Stormroof. Good in Adolf Hitler. That's what we do. Okay. We could try that. See if that will work to help us get this problem solved. See if we can find and try to love whatever that means. See if we can try to love all these people. To me, <laughs> just play back what Dr. Francis Cress Welsing said. Star six one. If you have commentary, uh, Irie in Louisiana should be with us as well. Hello. Oh, oh I dropped my phone. Hello. Okay. Um, I'm gonna keep it short because I'm just not. <laughs> I guess I'm just um, looking for catharsis at this point. Um, I did go to a um, Juneteenth observation, celebration, festival, whatever, Um, I determined it was the money-making scheme by the non-white individual that I I interned with him with his publication, and um, I don't know what to say about him as a person professionally, but, um, well, I would say 
I wouldn't work for him again, um, and I didn't. Uh, but it, I don't know. It was just shabbily put together. Um, they were selling these dinners. Uh, you had to buy uh, like a ticket or something, and, and you get your whole, the whole punch in different areas of the ticket. Like you could go back and get like some ribs, and then you could go back and get some chicken, and then you could go back and get some other type of meat, and go back and get some other type of meat. And I'm like, dang, like I just wanted to buy um, an ear of corn because I like corn. And, you know, I didn't think if it was GMO or not at the time. I was just kind of hungry. I'm like, I'm not eating this meat. Can I get the corn? They're like, nah, you got to buy a $30 punch ticket. And then ironically, before it was over, they were like, we got the uh, meal tickets half price. And then everybody went up, kind of stormed them and got some food. You know, I wasn't among them. There's an African storyteller there that I know, and he was singing the song, I Love My People. And he got some kids to participate, but at the end when he was trying to get the adults to participate, it was just, they weren't really, it was just me and another lady. We were, like, really excited. But, you know, uh, the programming on uh, anti-blackness um, centuries, centuries into it um, and his shows. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, last thing. There was a band. Well, last thing on that. There was a band playing before the storyteller, and the white guy on drums had a whole CIA cap on his head. And I said, okay, you must know what the CIA did to African-American people and African people for that matter. And you wearing this to a gym? Nobody challenged you? Tacky, trashy, terroristic. Um... I just, oh, sorry about that. Got some animals going nuts, if you heard that. Um, my son, uh, he, he's a little introverted sometimes, but I guess, I don't, I don't know, um, why he hadn't shared this with me. He apologized for not sharing it sooner, but he got a job. Um, he moved out because he decided that, you know, he was a little traumatized by some stuff that, has happened, like, you know, we had to call authorities to get him, you know, um, to a hospital and stuff. And I guess that, you know, it, it triggered him more than I knew. So he moved out and he's in, um, like a situation for teenagers or people that are up to 20 years old and it's a program and they help them find jobs and they don't have to pay rent and all that other stuff. But he got a job. And he was like, yeah, I'm calling in. I'm not going in to work today. He was telling me that earlier. I said, oh, why not? He's like, oh, it's so much unsafe stuff. And I'm like, like what? And he's like, yeah, they don't clean the stove in certain parts. He's like, they clean one part of the stove. But they don't clean the other part. And there's a lot of grease up there. And this is going to catch fire one day. He's like, and then um, there's some overheating in another area of the kitchen and something about the floor being slippery because of grease. And I'm like, there's nothing on the floor for the grease. He's like, like, yeah, it's like, uh, we say it's like mad slippery and we shouldn't pretend like someone couldn't trip backwards, trip backwards, forward, sideways. You know, in my opinion, they ain't supposed to be happening in the workplace. So I just ironically told somebody that we need to do, uh, employee rights for the teens. I did the class this Tuesday. And I was covering chemicals, uh, body language for self-control and mastery, and situational awareness. 
and I told them how to get the material data sheets, safety data sheets, and I'm like, we got to go over OSHA stuff. Like, everybody's talking about how to make a portfolio and a resume and, and why you should have an online presence. Well, what happens when you get the job and the people decide to practice racist, you know? And I was just upset because the stuff he was telling me, it just, it just, it's, it's no, it's, it's no words that can describe the feeling of knowing that your child at some point in time was in danger. You know what I'm saying? Like safety or health or their life being literally on the line for whatever reason. And that feeling came back to me and I really had to do a lot to try to check it. You know, I'm not trying to be upset now, but I am because, you know, to a degree, I understand why my son didn't want to really discuss it because he probably felt powerless and he hasn't seen men in his own life be powerful or black men. And it's because they're victims of racism. But, you know, for him to have endured certain things on this job and not thought to tell me, because he knows I will do my best. I will sue somebody or I'll get somebody to sue you. (laughs) <laughs> for something it, 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 he knows I'll do that and I just don't understand why you sat on it but I'm really more angry at these white people and I told him I said something tells me they're the type of white people that'll come in hey how you doing today oh you look like you're getting gaining weight or you look like you're working out or whatever they'll small talk you to death and violate every law ever thought of on the books and I'm like you can't you got. You have to say less than necessary. You've got to write stuff down. You have to report stuff as soon as you notice it or as soon as it happens. He said there's a non-white female that is mixed. That's what he said. I guess he got it from me. I used to say that. He said, I notice people like me better when she's not there. She does things to make people not like me. I said, well, son, that's called harassment. So I spent the rest of my evening of the day looking up the laws on harassment in the workplace of the state inciting that and sending that to him so he can write some stuff up. I'm just really, like, all get tired of racism, white supremacy, and all of its, uh, all of its complications and, and, and problems. You know, and like you said, please, Creator, do something because, I mean, how are white, like, the fact that white people are going around killing people, shooting people in churches and this and that, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's the, what the hell are y'all mad about? You mad because you didn't get here first or something? You mad because y'all weren't the first people on the planet and because Africans gave the world just about everything they know, now you're upset about it, now you're going around dominating and killing and da-da-da-da-da. I'm just so tired of it. And just praise me and my son, particularly my son, because he's really trying, and I don't want anything to happen to him when he lashes and smokes again because I don't know what my reaction is going to be. You know what I'm saying? So that's all I want to say. Have a uh, I'll meet my line. Good night. Much obliged, Irie. Man, self-care. Get some rest. Um, Drink your water. Breathing exercises. Probably for both you and your son, especially, you know, if he's been going through all this terrorism and trauma in the workplace. Some breathing exercises where you can just sit, you know, quietly deep breathing calm yourself so important to just try we had that segment in the news clips on uh, yoga I was out in California but either way so important uh, to nourish we go through so many events of terrorism and just like her offspring she was talking about her son 
being mistreated in the workplace and you don't want to talk about it you feel powerless you feel helpless you don't want to be confused it's embarrassing I just keep it to myself which can a lot of times just you know add to the anxiety and make it worse very important as she talking to your asking questions that's the basics that she just did what do you mean unsafe unsafe how what who making you feel bad do what and correcting him with words she's doing what making people not oh so she's harassing you in the workplace oh well let's document the nature of this now even that now I mean really with everything that's been happening shootings at the school shootings at the grocery store shootings at the hospital with all of this hey we do have neutralizing workplace racism every Friday 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific but all the time we say hey you individually have to be responsible for your safety just like we heard from that black mother Irie in Louisiana hey these white people and unfortunately a lot of non-white people they will just sit there and oh hasn't it been a blessed Juneteenth did you get any of the Walmart ice cream oh it's just been lovely and harambee it's been spectacular and I got my Rona shot and I got my Juneteenth band-aid and blah 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 and then they don't even oh yeah we didn't wasted chemicals all over the floor and got asbestos in the ceiling and lead in the water oh it was a beautiful day harambe my black brother harambe you look so good look like you've lost about five pounds mm-hmm. and we got chemicals and and we've wage theft as they call it we haven't even compensated you correctly but don't even worry about that because you got sniffles and other things to think about that is very very common in the workplace we've had several folks we were talking our mommy in Virginia was talking about her child in the work and safety came up there too I mean it's mad because so many I'm talking about myself me and so many other non-white people when we start our work career especially if we start you know young like meaning uh, teens and what have you or even if you start later uh, so many of us we don't have an older person parent, guardian, aunt, uncle grandparent, somebody uh, to talk to us about the workplace you will be put in unsafe and I mean that could take a whole lot of different forms you have to take responsibility for keeping yourself safe or in it. I mean, anything, including you being killed. We talked about the black male who died in Florida was killed in a porta potty on the job. That's not including all the workplace injuries and everything else. You had a black female was talking about she had a non-white classified as black co-worker who mocked her for wearing a mask and doing the COVID-19 protocols and then it seems this black female been out now for two weeks with a viral infection that may be COVID-19 maybe not but viral infection you had this black female before being out for two weeks was trying to hug 
the black female who was, hey, I'm distancing, wear my mask. Hey, let's still be safe, promote safety in the workplace. The system of white supremacy is inherently unsafe. You're mistreating people all the time. That's not safe. So I mean, hey, the work environment is not safe. We We are supposed to pretend that it is. You just have to make them honor that. But I mean, hey, there's nothing about a plantation that is safe. That's just a concept like justice. But that is disgraceful. I'm glad you were able to uh, talk with your child and document, document that anything where it's, wow, this is a fall hazard. This is not being cleaned properly anything with a kid in fact that's one i would even say we do workplace racism is friday but this is important and workplace racism always allowed on the compensatory call-in we used to have it as a part of the compensatory call-in but anything like that if you work with food oh they have white people that they have to answer to this is not one that you gotta do it or i'm big old bad negro and i'm gonna get you and i'll go get out sharpton and we with no 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 <laughs> they do have food and safety inspectors like what now you're not cleaning what you're not cleaning what up off the floor you don't have that <laughs> all of that that and same thing with COVID-19 because we have people who talked about that where they that worked successfully just report the document what we heard write it down dates times if this is an ongoing thing write it down every day all as much detail as you can and I would report them they will have white inspectors. They might even send a non-white person, but inspectors, they will come out and see, is this true? Ooh, we might have to make some changes here. Use that to your advantage as well, but that's another one for it to really be effective. Documentation, and you got to know what policy and procedure is to know. And some of that is just common sense. Like you can observe, like, isn't this supposed to be cleaned? This is dangerous. I could fall. Injuries, all that. Before we sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Make sure talking to your offspring and just in general to non-white people about that, including cigarettes. But smoking in general, yes. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, wine should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. All right. Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, you were mentioning earlier about uh, um, taking offspring to the library. Uh, I remember taking my daughter to the library as young as, like, like five years old. <clears throat> and uh, it was the, lo- you know, it's the, it's the local library that's uh, near, near my house. And, um, you know, at the time they had a children's section, which I just kind of took her down there and, you know, just opened up a book and just read. So she could just be comfortable, you know, being in a library. And then as she got older into, you know, her elementary school years, we just uh, spend one day a week uh, after school just, you know, sometimes she'll just, you know, pick a book and read it or, or out, you know, she'll just do homework. Uh, in most cases, uh, but 
you know, the thing was, was that I wanted to get her comfortable in that particular environment. So, um, but I think I'll, you know, I, I recommend parents, you know, kind of just do that, uh, even at a very young age, just to get them acclimated to, you know, a library setting. Um, today being Juneteenth, I mean, not today, tomorrow, sorry, being Juneteenth, um, I have a, uh, I have two friends who have a podcast uh, locally here, and on their podcast, they had different people uh, talk about different Juneteenth events that was uh, around the Chicagoland area. Now, whether you, you know, celebrate it or not, you know, here was the point. One of the guys asked everybody who was on the podcast um, if they had an educational component of why they celebrate Juneteenth. None of them can answer yes. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, Like I said, whether you celebrate it or not, uh, he was intentional when he asked that question because it's like, if you're going to celebrate it, then at least know something about it. And, uh, you know, they're, you know, you know, you're talking about reading, you know, there are books about Juneteenth uh, that can educate people on it. Um, Juneteenth, the story behind the celebration by Edward Cotham. Uh, that's actually a pretty, pretty good book. Um, the great Dr. Gerald Horn just recently released a book called The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. He has a whole chapter on Juneteenth. So, uh, you know, I recommend it, you know, to people uh, take a look at those two books and, you know, and, and, and learn about Juneteenth. But, uh, you know, it's a it, it's something that, you know, I, I think um, most of us victims, you know, if we're going to do something or we're going to celebrate something, you know, at least know something about it outside of the main narratives that, you know, uh, a white savior named Gordon Granger came by and just told the slaves, you know, hey, you're free. So um, I would at least want people to kind of educate themselves on, you know, this whole Juneteenth thing. So, but uh, that's all I have on in my life. Much obliged, uh, Henry, in Chicago reading substantially more important than watching television. Love it. Take your offspring to the library as early as possible so they are acclimated, comfortable, familiar in that setting and enjoy reading. This is, you know, something I've been doing forever. Going to get books and, and all that and then it'll be like going to the university, like, oh, we're going to Northwestern. Oh, the excitement and built up. I've already looked at the catalog and all the or any other you know libraries like lifelong learner and hopefully someone who very attentive about words uh, speaking since we had Chicago and the CIA mentioned I thought of Henry in Chicago I was doing my research it is so interesting the little odd things you'll stumble across as you're researching and then Bay Area mom she just said the fella had on the CIA oh no that was uh, Irie in Louisiana said the fella had on the CIA hat at the 
Juneteenth Jamboree. There was a report. This is December 25. How about that? White Jesus birthday, 1980. Uh, rights case against FBI CIA part settled. In partial settlement of a suit by civil liberties groups, the FBI and CIA have promised not to engage in illegal political spying against Chicago organizations or their members, according to court documents. The agreements signed in secret (laughs) come as a partial settlement of a six-year-old federal court suits against the agencies and the Chicago Police Department, John Burge, and are subject to approval by the U.S. District Judge Susan Getzendanner. As a part of the settlement, sources said the FBI admitted it committed at least 500 break-ins or burglaries in the Chicago area between 1948 and 1966. These were purportedly carried out to obtain intelligence information, but the plaintiffs contended that at least some were to obtain membership lists or other lawful data about the groups disliked by former FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, the group he most disliked the Negros spokesman for the FBI and Justice Department refused to discuss details of the settlement the FBI Bureau of Investigation explicitly renounced the use of illegal break-ins for intelligence gathering and promised not to engage in any activity to impair the lawful conduct of persons or groups they promised really the FBI internal security investigations may look only into conduct that violates federal law and may not base such investigations on citizens exercising their constitutional rights no matter how controversial the political activity the central intelligence agency's much narrower agreement said the agency would comply with the u.s constitution and federal statutes and regulations one of which prohibits the cia from domestic spying city officials refused to sign a similar agreement on behalf of the police department and have decided to go to trial instead i said john burge but like for real because i think at this time i think he would have still been chief of the chicago police department unless my math and history is off by a tap i mean it would be real close i think yeah, like genital prodding of black males and all that. Like, oh, yeah, I can see whether they yeah, We're not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to get my electric cattle prod right now. Ah, say you did it, nigga. <laughs> Got to get payback. Well, Harold Washington hadn't been elected mayor yet. So a little bit ahead of things. Anyway, uh, much obliged. Can I answer that, Jeff? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. So actually, in the early 80s, that uh, late 70s, early 80s, that's when um, Burge started his uh, reign of terror. Uh, and also, too, uh, you know, you just uh, mentioned about that report in Chicago. Uh, I, I think you mentioned that Chicago police refusing to re- uh, sign that order. Uh, that's why you get a case like Anjanette Young, who they broke into her house while, you know, she was naked uh, and broke into the wrong place at that. But uh, that's all I have in my life. That's a recent case too. The uh Anjanette Young with yeah, she, so disgraceful. Um but I mean, yeah, now see, that's what I mean. Now, you go and research, you can put a whole lot of things in context. Make that a family research project, go to the library, like let's see 
what interesting reports that we can find about things that have happened in Chicago over the last hundred. You could even be, you know, make it fun. Like we'll find things that happen on Madison Avenue, you know, and have to be something related to Madison Avenue and Inchic or whatever, you know, or subject matter, you know, have to be something related to the hospital or anything, anything. Uh, you can just have fun with it where they have an interest. You can tailor it to that. Or certainly you have racism Project John Burge. Let's, you know, look at his history. Of that. I bet they have a whole section on John Burge. If you go to like Northwestern or the University of uh, Chicago or whatever, like wherever your local library is, they will have all kinds of information. Just pick out a site. If you're in Florida, uh, the lynching of Claude Neal, they probably got whole sections just on that alone. Not to uh, uh, Dr. Harry Moore, Dr. Harry T. Moore probably got whole sections I think they got whole libraries named after him uh, down in Florida like yeah definitely make sure if you have offspring that are classified as not black they should not be strangers to the they should be more comfortable there than in front of a television screen a couple of years ago they were talking about putting the John Birch case in uh, in uh, the history, uh, Chicago history books but I haven't seen it yet hmm that is oh I remember that I remember that that was supposed to be a part of the settlement when they had uh, all that oh my goodness yes we put the electric prides on the genitals and you know oh my gosh we're so sorry how we messed over the black males and oh it's terrible yes we're it was terrorism they said that explicitly we're going to call this terrorism that's what it was we're going to use correct words and they said yes we're going to put this textbooks Chicago public schools children need to know about this they cannot come through and be ignorant about John Burge and all that come on and that this was a long world well, I won't say a long time ago I should be be able to give you specific but this was within the last decade or so when they had this agreement they were going to do all this like that is that is disgraceful and just more white supremacy racism I'm not going to say the metaphor dragging their feet you're not uh, following through with your agreement to be truthful that's why this is another one this is not white people are ignorant about racism i'm sure white people in chicago are way more informed than probably myself and henry in chicago about john burge i think it's a white man he wrote a whole book about john burge and it's exactly what i said electric prime on the genitals yeah admit you did it ah yes you did all of that this is not we're ignorant this, yeah We'll get to it in 2020. And the Rona, you know, we had lots of troubles and things. And we just didn't have time to get around to that. And that's, you know, bringing up old stuff anyway and get around to that later on. You know, got Michael Jordan to talk about. Oprah went to the Obama library. Yes, yes, the Obama library. The Obama library. They should have a whole, like, room. The John Burge terrorism room. That was if I was in charge, which I am not. Anywho, uh, much obliged for folks uh, sharing time and energy hope it was worthy of your saturday evening uh the book club will be here thursday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh you have to see black talk radio network uh facebook social media for other dates and times for broadcasts working to get other folks here as a white guest but then i did say you know we'll have to break the rule one time i guess for frank dr frank e dobson jr rendered invisible uh if you if you would like to get into reading, because I know racists, they do a lot to discourage us from reading. If you want to start doing some reading, if you're interested in, in reading about the Buffalo case, if you were piqued by my little teaser from this text, this is not a big book. It's like 100 pages, literally, I think. Yep, 
about 100, 130 pages. Uh, and they're short stories. So this is not one of those really long and you got to look up every other word and everything. And it should hold your attention because it's all about this actual racist serial killer that we do not know about. So rendered invisible. Frank E. Dobson Jr. Uh, probably won't be at your local library, I would bet. But college library take a visit and a lot of times those college libraries they can get access to books that are not actually on the shelf take advantage that's it uh, much obliged for folks who tuned in sobriety would be best especially for non-white offspring protect your brain computer in addition to being sober if you're out and about I, man if uh, situation uh, pastor uh, in Newburgh, past Pastor Macklemore. Should I get his name in? Uh, oh, and I didn't get the pause right there. Lame old Gus did find that. I just we were talking about other things. Uh, so we heard from Grayson Doctor, her mother, one of the victims, uh, the Charleston Nine. Her mother was the Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, and the other eight victims, uh, State Senator Reverend Doctor Clementa C. Pinckney, Susie Jackson, Cynthia Graham Hurd. Ethel Lee Lance, Tawanza Sanders, Daniel L. Simmons, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, and Myra Thompson. The mother, Emmanuel AME 9, uh, victims of white terrorism uh, in June of 2015, seven years ago. Again, we had Dr. Francis Cress Welsing as a guest on the program the day after the massacre uh, where she wow <laughs> amazing commentary go back it should be in the archives if you need to hear that still very applicable unfortunately but yeah I think that too is important not forgetting that these events happened why they happened and they will continue to happen until we permanently solve this problem if you are out and about in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled up, not on a cell phone, just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. If you are attacked, as was Reverend Macklemore, in my view, it is all about get to safety, call enforcement officials. It's not stop and record, anything like that. Go to a public place, call enforcement officials. Even if you want to, I would say just go to a public place, major public place, call enforcement officials distance uh, you're not trying to confront that person I'm not even trying to stop and record make sure we get it all on camera just call the enforcement officials and try as best you can to get if your offspring is with your offspring a plural get them to safety put that in quotes all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no reckless production of offspring cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim <laughs>
Shut I'm a victim up. of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>